It's July 18th, 2022. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 192 of Roxado Navadodo. You struggled with that one. <laughs> the numbers are getting too high. <laughs> so after Sada Hashdod, I lose it. Sado Navadodo. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Nice to be talking to you. I hope you're keeping well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz. Durud Bashama. Sado Navadodo. Can you believe it? Merci. No, Happy midsummer, everybody out there. Is it? Is it? I mean, do you feel like it's summer? It's. It, it is it, summer outside. It definitely is summer outside. But I feel like I've been in the studio maybe too much or something. Probably. Yeah. I'm like, oh, summer hasn't started. I, I was thinking summer hasn't started. Then I was looking, and it's like, like <laughs> it's end of July or something. You know, yeah. what's happening? Yeah. Hello, Groovy Shia. Hello, Fabulous Keon. Hi, the Fabulous Keon. I hear. That uh, this um, Tirgon Tammuz festival that was happening over the last few days in Toronto, a big Persian festival, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But I hear you are being recognized and called the fabulous Keon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You see what I've done for you? Yeah, yes, all thanks. I mean, to it's you. not you're not that fabulous, <laughs> yes, quite not frankly. That much. And people are running around <laughs> calling you the fabulous Keon. <laughs> it's quite hilarious, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I was there at one point when somebody was like, "Oh, are you the fabulous Keon?" <laughs> that's a question. Uh, like, Jesus. Is it you? <laughs> are you sure? You're no ordinary Keon. <laughs> uh, this is a big show. Um, are we it's our uh, all killer, no filler, uh, summer of Monday uh, only big shows, which we might continue forever because we're having a lot of fun with these big shows. Um, award-winning British poet, a legendary translator of everything from Hafez to the Shahnameh to My Uncle Napoleon, Daiju Napoleon, uh, Dr. Dick Davis. Yes. Now, I have to say, we have three big guests on this show. And uh, Dr. Dick Davis is going to be the last guest. So, you know, if you're listening to this right now, about an hour from now, uh, don't zoom ahead, but um, but do stick around because uh, I'm I'm so excited to talk to this man. He really is a legend. And if you like me, if your only window into some of the great works of uh, Iranian poetic history. Hafez, the Shahnameh, uh, of course, in a more, more modern sense, my uncle Napoleon. If your only window into those works is in English, mm-hmm. it's more than likely, uh, almost entirely likely, that you've been reading Dick Davis's words. You're reading his interpretation, his translation of Hafez. So I feel like I've read a lot of Dick Davis, and I know he has an amazing personal story of being this British kid who. British kid who studied poetry was became a British poet and then ends up going to Iran in I guess the early 70s falling in love staying in Iran falling in love with the country and with his future life partner Uh, and that's the rest is history he has to leave after the revolution but he devotes his life Mm -hmm. to Iranian works Uh, this British man now living in the US who is more of an advocate for Persian poetry than most Persians are Mm. Uh, Dr. Dick Davis coming up so excited to have him on the program 
Faizi Samai, Faizi Samai, is going to be in the Rook studio. She is uh, a young Iranian woman. I guess she's an Iranian Canadian now. She's been in Canada for a few years. Who is uh, burning up the internet as a fitness and health advocate. Uh, she's got amazing energy. She's also an engineer, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Naturally, she's a person that's like. It's like if she wasn't an engineer, we'd be disappointed. Uh, he's a great painter. Is he engineer? Yes, he is, Dad. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Faiz uh, Samai coming into the Rook studio. She's got this massive following online. Uh, hopefully, she's not going to tell me what I can and can't eat. Oh, I feel like we're. What are we, I feel like it's like a condition I have. We keep booking people to come in and tell, tell, to tell me to stop eating bread. You know. Uh, and on a less um, excited or less fun uh, subject, um, but certainly uh, an important one, perhaps the most important one on this show. We're going to get uh, midway through the show. We're going to talk about what you might have heard about uh, folks out there around the world, might have heard about a new spate of arrests in Iran of prominent filmmakers. This time, the great Jafat Panahi, Mohammad Rasulov, and as well, Mustafa Ola Ahmad. As far as I know, the story is that um, Rasulov and Ola Ahmad were... They signed or, or they put out a statement simply saying, please don't detain or yeah. arrest or punish. Put the down folks. your guns. Put down your guns. Yeah. That's right. Well, on the protesters during the Abaddon uh, situation last month. Yeah. Uh, so they're just making a statement mm-hmm. for which they were arrested. And then Jafar Panahi goes to appeal for them and say, please don't, you know, please let these guys be free. So they arrested him, <laughs> right? Uh, and <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's funny and and sad, absurd yeah. at the same time. So uh, on this program, we're going to have uh, the award-winning Iranian-Canadian filmmaker and a man who was arrested himself. In fact, arrested himself twenty years ago with Jafar Panahi, uh, Babak Payami, coming up in a, in uh, midway through the show to talk about what he makes of this new, as I say, spate of arrests. And um, I know in the case of Jafat Panahi, who happens to be uh, one of my favorite filmmakers in the world, Iranian or not, yeah. and a beautiful, really sweet man, I've had the occasion to interview him. This isn't, this isn't the first time he's been arrested, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like a revolving door, it's like yes. a Groundhog Day. Um, I did an interview in 2010, I can't believe it's 12 years now, with uh, Maziar Bahari. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the arrest of Jafar Panahi at that point. And we're actually going to put a link to that in the description of our program if you want to hear that old interview. Um, but one of the one of the things I was thinking about, which I'm going to bring up with Babak Payami, is, um, is with the frequency of these kinds of arrests, and we don't just see this with filmmakers, of course, but the situation, the Vaziate Iran in general, um, there there comes a normalization of it in in, in a sense where... Um, we just, there's only so much we can be surprised. Yes. So you hear, and I was reflecting on this because it's actually big fucking news, you know, mm-hmm. that, that these award-winning filmmakers are being thrown in jail mm-hmm. for doing nothing, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, imagine, try and imagine in any kind of way 
in you know in the UK or in the US or something uh, they've taken Francis Ford Coppola and thrown him in jail because he made a statement about uh, speech or something I mean it would just be outrageous and here we are in this situation where people hear the news and kind of shake their heads you know and then move along (laughs) because because what are we supposed to do but that's the part that gets really worrisome scary mm-hmm. for me because yes. when it's no longer shocking mm-hmm. it, it, it's when does quiescence or complacency just become enabling it uh, and i'm not I, I don't know what the answer is i'm not suggesting a you know storm the palace mm-hmm. or whatever we're supposed to do but but that part is is just so difficult mm-hmm. you know and every iranian listening to this every single iranian listening to this gets it Guess what? Exactly what I'm saying. That yeah, you know, Jaffa Adpana, he's been arrested. Oh, oh boy. Yeah, it's been normalized. Okay. Yeah, it's it I'm, it's you know, so and often. something horrible happened yesterday and three days ago. Mm-hmm. And what are we supposed to do? And but um, prominent filmmakers who've made these incredible works, who are in the you know some of the pride of the nation, being thrown in jail because they made a statement. Yeah. <laughs> about protecting others who may I mean it's just it's just unbelievable so Bob Payomi coming up in um, a little bit uh, uh, looking forward to having him back on the program uh, remember if you're listening to us on a podcast platform you can do so on Spotify SoundCloud Apple Podcast Instagram CastBox um, it's uh, once a week now uh, also on YouTube and uh, then throughout the week, if you follow us on Instagram or social media, Telegram uh, and YouTube, we're putting up different moments, video moments from our interviews, etc. as well. Um, all of this can be found at rookmedia.com, our website, rookmedia.com. Hey, in a couple of weeks, our fun new travel slash documentary video series, Talking to Persians, will be posted very soon. Do you want to see the fabulous Keon live in London? <laughs> or at least she was live at that you're point. Just, you just lost about 500. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I don't know, maybe not the, I was going to say not Captain Reza, point. but that would not be there. <laughs> I will be on screen there you go. Uh, at the beginning of August with our uh, first destination, which is London. We are going to be posting Talking to Persians London coming soon. Featuring all kinds of interesting members of the London, England, Persian community. Uh, We're pretty excited about this series. First Stop London. We'll let you know more about when it's coming out. Hey, a big thank you to Hamid Reza Safi Boor for helping to make this episode of Rook get to your ears and eyes. Hamid Safi Boor, Luxury Custom Homes. Say the name Safi Poor, Keon. Safi Poor. There you go. You see? It wasn't so hard. Rhymes with luxury. <laughs> if you're in the Toronto area or you're an Iranian Canadian, you may know the name Safi Poor. Hamid got his master's in civil engineering and got into the field of building and consulting on luxury homes over three decades ago. And in the last 20 years, Team Hamid and Nina have made the Safi Poor name one of the tops in the business. A name you can trust to buy your dream land and your dream house, build your dream house. Safi Poor Luxury Homes have now teamed up with Remax and they're moving into also doing exotic high rises that are beyond things we've seen in the Toronto area before. If you are thinking to buy or sell or build your dream house, Keon. Okay, noted. If you are anywhere near the Toronto area, Keon. Again, noted. And interested in buying Shia? Yes. Get in touch with Safi Poor. Of course. Safipoor.com, S-A-F-I-P-O-O-R 
Safipour.com is where you go. Safipour.com. Thank you, sir. Hey, I mentioned that it was just the Tammuz Festival this uh, last few days in Toronto, which is the the placeholder name for the Tear Gone Festival. Don't get me started on why there has to be so many names. <laughs> yeah. I, I, but it's Tear Gone, basically. Right, it right, was kind right. of, but it wasn't official it Tear wasn't, Gone. Yeah, they wanted to differentiate it because yeah. this was actually supposed to be the No Ruse Festival, but because of COVID, yeah. they had to, you know, rebrand it to something yeah. else. So. so everybody was going, Are you going to, to Tammuz? What? <laughs> tear Gone? Oh, yeah, yeah Tear Gone. You know. Yeah. Uh, so at this Tear Gone <laughs> Tammuz Festival over the last few days in Toronto, if you're listening anywhere around the world, this is a, it's kind of a, it's a big, I think it's one of the biggest the in the biggest world. The, the biggest. Outside of Iran, yeah. It's a big arts and culture festival that happens biannually uh, in Toronto. And there's a Noru's version now and mm-hmm. the summer versions. And um, it's, it's, there's really, really memorable performances have happened at this uh, festival over the years. And what we thought we would do in, uh, this week was uh, send our roving reporter, <laughs> the fabulous Keon, uh, to uh, the Taboos Tear Gone Festival. <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> uh, how was your stint as it our was, roving reporter? It was so good. I mean, it was the first time I had been to a Persian event since COVID happened. So mm. this is the first time in two years. Really? You didn't go to a yeah, Noru's thing? I, there wasn't any Noru's no, thing. Yes, there was were. there? Yeah. I mean, it was still COVID mm. times, I think. And you don't consider concerts and things like that to be events? Um. Yeah, I guess there was, but not to this magnitude. Right, right. I mean, yes. Tergon, it was the huge. first big, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so it was just so good to interact with the community and, you know, talk see to a bunch Persians. of... See the Persians. Yeah, <laughs> I met a lot of Rook fans. It yes. was so great to see people in, yes. in person. Yes, it was really nice, yeah. Yeah, no, it was great. Um, talked to a lot of people. Um you know, the thing with Tiergon is it's it's run by the volunteers. There's mm. hundreds of volunteers running this thing. And I always wondered, you know, it's a lot of hard work. What makes them keep coming back? Because they're repeat volunteers. Um, it's a family. I mean, a it's lot of true. these people immigrate to a new country, Canada, and they miss home. They're like, you know, they miss the food. They miss the people. So to them, Tiergon is like a home away from home. And, you know, there's something special about that. It, the volunteer aspect is really, really remarkable. Mm-hmm. And and this team, this Tiergon team, uh, is such a community that I, I think, well, I know you remember, Keon, because you co-hosted it. When the Flight 752 tragedy yeah. happened, within a few days... There was this massive event mm-hmm. that was put together. The the Tear Gone team and, and volunteers sprung yeah. into action yeah. and were able to put together this event because that infrastructure yeah. exists. It's, it's a really, really wonderful that thing. that just brings everybody together. They all know their jobs and they all yeah. do that. And the, the volunteers are amazing. So uh, I, I want to ask you, I, I must say, uh, Shia, I would, I would, I went to a couple of the events at this uh-huh. uh, Tear Gone and, and uh, of course it was uh, great to, to see some great stuff, but I, I, every once in a while, you know, I want to see how Keon's doing, Savvy <laughs> Roham. I was like, oh, I wonder how my uh. my young roving reporter is. Uh, and, what, you know, I would find her with like a cupcake, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, like, like a, a muffin or something. I'd be like, are, are you guys shooting this? And Roham with like some crumbs in his mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're. And then there'd be like, you know, oh, there's Keanu Roham and she's got like some champagne and or like wine or something. And I'm like, what, what are you guys? So I don't, I know Roham has assured me that you've shot yeah, some yeah, great yeah. stuff. I mean, it's a festival. It's all part of the fun. It, it's hard work. Let me tell you, yes, drinking yeah. champagne is, is uh, not easy. Yeah. So what did you, 
you, how about this? Because uh, we're going to see this. We're going to put this up on our uh, social media in the coming days on our YouTube and Instagram channels. Uh, some of your, your um, the findings of, from the Tammuz Tirgon Festival. What, what, what's something you learned from uh, roving around with a microphone? Well, uh, let me tell you, the biggest thing is the theme of the volunteers. Like, what keeps bringing you guys back to doing this? Because I, I see them stressed out and, you know, putting in so much hard work. And to them, it's because they're so passionate about it. Their culture, their art, their history. They want to showcase that to the public, wow. you know? That was the running theme. Um, did you, you interviewed some of the volunteers? Yeah, I did. Nice. And some of the people that came there, you know, to them, it's 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 home right they're, they're coming back to their home country what was your strangest way. reaction oh strangest reaction <laughs> what's what was a strange reaction you got uh i can't say there was okay, any right. i mean Everybody are you expecting something on their shocking? game no I just yeah to... no i mean listen there's always going to be a few strange <laughs> characters in the iranian community yeah. i i saw a lot of strange Most of things yeah, yeah, yeah. happening but uh but no, it was it was for the most part really positive and beautiful. I got to see some amazing performances. What did uh, you Rast like? Talk was Weren't they great? Amazing. My God. You know, it's one thing listening to them on the show, of course, you mm. know, in their music, but seeing them live is just amazing. a performance of a lifetime. It's well. really worth seeing. If you get yeah. a chance to see Rastok anywhere mm. in the world, the the great Iranian folkloric mm. uh you know, they're not just a band. They're like um ethnomusicologists, archaeologists, mm, they're yes. mining this Persian music history in yes. terms of the stuff they play from different regions yeah. and different instruments, uh, different sauces. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and and by the way, they came into the studio yeah, uh, right. on, on, on Saturday. And so we recorded them in here and we're going to run that next week. And uh, it was so great to see them. They're just, right. they're also the sweetest people. I don't get this. Yeah. Uh, how come? <laughs> well, <laughs> there's something up with that band. They're so nice. They're so talented. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so Rastok was great, and and we saw Fariba Davoudi, uh -huh. who is a very fine singer. Who she lives in Toronto now. Yes, she's really amazing. Yeah. And then last night, um, Babak Amini and mm. Shahi Najafi oh, yeah. uh, performing together. Now, if for those who would find that sort of shocking. They did put out a song last year mm -hmm. together and Shaheen's been in Toronto and so he got to know Bob back and they started working together. And uh, the show was, it was, I just thought it was amazing. Wow. I thought it was really, really, you know, I'm a fan of both of these guys and, and uh, but I really thought, here's what I thought. I thought, I mean, Shaheen Najafi, if you've seen him perform, he's, he, He's a great performer. He gets he he is uh, he is just uh, you don't want to take your eyes off him when he's on stage. He's a really interesting guy. He's got a um, a, a very interesting, fertile mind, creative mind, and he's a great singer. So all of, of those things course, put together, yeah. and not to mention his lyrics, etc. But then Bobak wasn't just the great guitarist on stage. He he had done all these arrangements mm -hmm. of the songs that they've written together, but also um, taking old Shahi Najafi hits and songs and, and doing these arrangements with this amazing band that they had put together. And I've, I sometimes forget how great an arranger Bob Akamini oh, is. He's mm -hmm. I mean, he's, you know he's yeah. a monster guitarist, yes. but just like I, like I was thinking, 
the, who comes up with that sax line and wow. the, the little mm-hmm. syncopated rhythms at times. And it yeah. was and and it all was really complementary to what Shaheen because Shaheen's style at first glance you would think it'd be very different from Bob Akamini but it worked together anyway I thought it was a, a great show mm-hmm. it was really and people went apeshit people really enjoyed it <laughs> well, I'm not sure something uh, like, maybe they wouldn't describe it that way they enjoyed it <laughs> I have to say some some of Bob Ak's composition for Gugush they're like fabulous you know, they're yeah. amazing he is really great he's, he's really he great he is legendary you yeah. sometimes forget because he's such a nice guy yes and you know he's a great guitarist but yeah. there's all this other stuff that uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway there we go shout out to see now that if I called him the fabulous Bob Akamini <laughs> that would kind of make sense but it's the brand <laughs> you, you is, have a point but Maybe I can't I can't change it no oh, it's well. like TM the fabulous Keon well, how do I, I change that that's unfortunate. I guess I'll just stay with it. <laughs> I think it's awesome that you were out there roving around, and I and you also did a great job at uh, co-hosting the opening uh, ceremony. And um, so we'll we'll look forward to your the fruits of your labor, Keon. Why, June. Thank you. Um, a compliment from Gian. <laughs> let's get to uh, <laughs> let's get to our first guest who's coming into the studio. Here we go. My first guest today is a Toronto-based. Iranian personal fitness trainer and the woman behind the extremely popular Instagram channels Faez Fitness and more Faez. On her platforms, Faez Samai makes accessible little videos where she shares exercise routines, teaches fitness tips, and cooks healthy food. She was born and raised in Tehran. She graduated in textile engineering from Amir Kabir University. Then Faez moved to Canada in 2015 with the mission to pursue her passion of fitness and ended up studying health promotion as well as a degree in kinesiology at Humber College. She is a growing star on the internet, but right now, Faizeh Samai joins me live in the Rook studio. Hello. Hi. Very nice to have you here. Thank you so much. Growing star on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. A textile engineering degree. I mean, this is really, you really underscore the Iranian stereotype where no matter what we do, you have to have the engineering. I want to be a painter. That's okay. Just become an engineer first. I want to be a fitness coach. Just become an engineer first. Um, Were you interested in textile engineering? Um. No, I wasn't. Like back in Iran, you don't have a choice. Like you just go through an exam and then based on your score, you end up somewhere. So that's where I ended up. Like it was not out of like passion for textile. So is that a good score? To, I mean, textile engineering is pretty impressive stuff. Does it, do you have to have a good score to get go, in, go into that? The university that I went to was a pretty good university. I so I was, you, yeah. yeah, it was. So I kind of had a good score. Like I wasn't like a like very on top, uh-huh. but it was good enough to get into that uh, but there's, university. There's fitness coaches. Uh, there's people who teach and, and help uh, in, with health in Iran. Yes. So it, it wasn't, it's not like you didn't have that option, is it? Um, It's not like, you know, here you Google and you find a place to go to like, like, classes or whatever yes. or courses at least when i grew up there was nothing like that like you couldn't google something so mm. you went through like the um, education system that they designed unless like you knew somebody i never knew how i always wanted to like mm. to be a trainer to get into the fitness world i never had the chance but uh, now that i look back i realize why like i went through it th- that way because I came to Canada because I went to the university. That's how, because I came here as a student. I needed ah. to apply and then come here to study master. So if I didn't go through that university and get that degree, 
Like I don't think I could come Interesting. here. Interesting. So ironically, the textile engineering did help you become it a fitness did. coach. Yes, I'm so <laughs> thankful to that. Four years. What What forever. is textile engineering? It's about fabric uh-huh. and how it's made and like clothes. Um, the factory, the the factory lines. You're even different. bored talking about it. it <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I, it's like, really not I'm, your field. In two seconds, I'll be done. That's how much I remember from it. <laughs> um, your your page, your Instagram channel, um, is really accessible and fun. But at the same time, it's clear, it's it's clear you know what you're doing, um, and you're really dedicating yourself to sharing your life. I mean, this is not just you in a gym. We see all sides of you, you know, you at home, you with your cat, you cooking, you working out, obviously. Uh, and inside that you lace in these tips and these um, this fitness help. Uh, when did you decide that that's something you wanted to do to share that much of yourself? Um, so I think I started like 2016, something um, happened in my personal life. I lost my boyfriend. And um, I was traumatized from the whole experience. I felt pretty lonely because it was like literally like my first year in Canada and I was going to university. I couldn't like hang out with my classmates. They were a little bit younger than me by a few Mm. years. I couldn't relate to them. Meaning he died? He died, yes. He passed away from cancer. And like I was in a very bad place and I didn't have any friends and I was way too shy to even make friends. Was he somebody you had met in Iran? No, I met him in university. Oh, so in, we in were Canada. In Canada. So we met um, first and sem- second semester. Like we dated on second semester. And then halfway he diagnosed with cancer. Oh my God. And then he he went to the, he, he was hospitalized. And then seven, eight months later, he passed away. So, and after that, I I had nobody to share that with. Like, I didn't have a shoulder to cry on. I was, like, I was pretty miserable. Your family didn't move here. You moved here alone. No, I had my family here. They were no, here? Yeah. They so were you had sister. those shoulders to, to cry on. Kinda, yeah. But uh-huh. you know, here everyone's busy with their life and there's so much that you can share. At some point, you're mm-hmm. like, I cannot just put too much on their plate. Like, I have to deal with it on myself. Jeez, what, um, what kind of cancer did he have? He was a young guy. Leukemia. Yeah, he was just 24. He was just like the most, the fittest person I've ever met in my life. He was like, like he had muscles, like uh-huh. and muscles, yeah. Um, and he, you would know something about this. How, how do how does someone get leukemia at twenty four? Um, I don't know to be honest. No. Like, yeah, it was it was very unfortunate. Especially like you don't expect someone that young and that fit, no. like something like this would happen. And he was the sweetest, kindest person. And that would that would change your life. Something like that. I mean, that's exactly. a that's a for you. That's a heavy trip to go through. Especially like I was just 24 and it happened um, literally one year after my own dad died. So I lost two very important people in my life, Mm. like literally close to each other. So I was already trying to heal from my dad passing and then this happened. You're in a new country. You're not. I'm a new immigrant. Like I'm I'm still struggling speaking English. So how did you deal with it? not in a good way i think now that i look back i realize i should have talked to somebody like therapist or someone i didn't do that and i don't take my family realized that maybe i needed someone to talk to so i started doing instagram because i just needed to talk i just needed to talk to some people like even like not necessarily about what happened just to talk to share to just to just distract myself. So that's how it happened. I started with one video and then 
it all happened. Wow. Yeah. It's so it kind of turns it on its head, the idea that because we hear so much about how our smartphones and social media and all of that is actually making us lonelier and we're we're not connecting as much. But in some cases, yeah. yours would be a case where it was actually a savior for you. It it did save me. What did so but you weren't posting about him. You, no, back then I wouldn't share it with anybody. I mean, I didn't even know this story, and you've done a number of interviews, but I, 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 I haven't seen this before. I think this is the first time I'm actually bringing him. Like, I posted few things, like, after three, four years of uh -huh. that, um, when he passed away. Like, I wasn't ready to even share, because I felt like a failure, like, after him. Like, I know it had nothing to do with me failing, but back then, I felt like that I am so traumatized, and I wouldn't be able to date ever again and all that. So I didn't want any, like, that. I was ashamed that I went through such experience back then. Now, Why I'm would like, you feel ashamed? Like, like, I'm not a healthy person, like, mentally. Mm. Like, if they, if they, if somebody finds out that I went through that experience, immediately they're going to be like, okay, she must be, like, broken inside mm. or depressed or whatever. So I try to hide it so nobody know that, like, inside mm. of me, what, like, the things that are happening. So there, I want there, there, there are very few people. I don't know if there's anybody who isn't broken on some level yeah. inside because of something. So, uh, but that's a major, major thing for you to go through in your mid twenties in a new country. Yeah. Um, so, how, how did, uh, and and oh, I mean, I feel just, uh, I'm, I feel like I must have to, have to take a moment to think about that because it's, it's, um, you must still think about them all the time. I do, but not in a painful way anymore. Mm. Like I would get emotional, but I'm so grateful that I had that experience that I met him and I, because he was my f first friend before he was a boyfriend in Canada. Mm. Like I practiced English with him. He kind of took my hand through like the Canadian lifestyle. So I'm so grateful. And you would have been around as, I mean, I, I certainly know what it's like to have been around somebody who has cancer and they're, they're degenerating. You're seeing it every day, yes. and that—that's—I mean—that journey is. It's pretty difficult, especially horrific. when someone from that, like a fit person, goes to that like a stage that they're just like so skinny and they cannot even like lift something like a glass, and then they end up in ICU. Like it's just that change, like in eight months. That's a lot to process. You might—you must have at some point thought, "I'm not going to get over this. I'm not going to be yeah. able to move on." Yes. Yes. But you do, like, I never thought I would, but you do move on. So how did the fitness um, help you? I mean, what, how did, how did that, is that what you were doing on the, on Instagram? How, how did you first start feeling like this is healing? I'm talking and people are hearing me. What, what is, what, what part of that was healing for you? So you get like, I started posting videos and I talk and I get interaction from people. So now I have like these, kind of friends that I talk to and then I see that they're giving me attention because I had nobody that I would talk and then they would talk back with me hmm. like back in university not that there were no uh, nobody to talk to I was so shy especially like I was not comfortable in my English skills so you're not shy at all on camera <laughs> when I'm alone you, with my own phone like that's a different story it's Jennifer so interesting 
because you're very comfortable. I mean, that's one of the things that makes you, uh, you know, I think that that's the story of the 21st century. People who are comfortable on camera, I mean, you you know, versus those who aren't because yeah. you, you sort of win that part of the internet because you, you know, somebody who's comfortable in their own skin makes the viewer feel comfortable. And that's certainly the case with you. I, I imagined that you were somebody who was never shy and was probably, you know, on videotape since you were a little kid no, or something. No. <laughs> huh. Like I was the shyest person ever. To this day, I would still identify myself as a shy person, but I try like not to show it as much. <laughs> but you're, well, how, do, that's so interesting to me. How does somebody who identifies as shy um, exhibit such confidence on video and show their house and, you know, and, and, you're 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 not shy about even showing you in you're sweaty and in the middle of a workout. I mean, there's some people who won't turn on the camera without putting full makeup on or something. You know, I know you, that, that's like I I don't mind showing it when nobody's like I like to take the video. I don't mind posting, but if if there are real people around me, like with like real human beings around me, then I get shy. Right, but, not the two hundred fifty thousand people who watch no, the video. it's okay. They can watch it. <laughs> That is, that's quite funny, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> ah, if that feels somehow less intrusive than if somebody's in the room. Yeah. Huh. So um, so you that must have been, given that you identify as shy, you start making these videos. And what was the point where you start thinking, I can marry this with my fitness and, and, and my passion? Because I was studying um, fitness. So, and I was so passionate in like the whole fitness world. And so I would go to class, I would learn something. I would go to the gym and make video off of things that I was learning in class. So it kind of helped me to study too. So I was like using my education um, to create content on Instagram. That's how it kind of merged together and it got me to this point. You, yeah. you've, you've said something about being a kid back in Iran in middle school or something mm. and uh, being kind of topoli or, or something where you are like a, you 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 know you had put on some weight or something and, and that was the moment where you decided you wanted to be you got get into fitness is that the story um so like I come from a family that um, we have the gene to gain weight <laughs> so growing up and I'm the last um, last kid mm. and growing up I always hear these conversations from like people, women around me that, oh, I got, I gained weight. Oh, like I don't feel confident about my body, this and that. Mm -hmm. So I always had the fear that this is where I'm going to end up. And um, I realized if I don't want to end up like where these women end up, mm -hmm. up, so I should start working out. So that's was that was the initial um, um, thing that got me into the whole fitness mm -hmm. world. And you knew that you were good at it. I mean, I've, you've also talked about the fact that you, you're not great at sports, like team sports yeah, at no, all. No. Which is interesting because to watch you on your videos, you're obviously extremely fit. You have endurance. You're strong. Yeah. Um, tell me about the delta or the difference between uh, individual and team sports for you. I think sports is all about competition and um I didn't grow up like being in, in like in a household that even like there's this person who's like part of the sport world. And I, I never felt confident to mm. compete against anybody. And that's why I loved gym. That's why I love lifting weights because there's no competition. It's just you with the weights. And then you just get the stronger on your own. There's nothing to compete with. So I, d I don't. Competing against yourself, I suppose. 
kind of yeah mm -hmm. that's that's okay mm -hmm. but not against somebody because like if like it's when there's someone else and you're trying to compete you know some people have it in yes. them like is there's just so you're like, not that way no i'm not I you don't, don't want like to be it. number one no <laughs> no really yeah well, um but why not it's just it's not in me you know what i mean mm. maybe because, because i growing up nobody told me that i have to be number one or nobody put me in a situation that i have so to refreshing. compete <laughs> <laughs> I, everybody I, who comes on this show says oh my parents <laughs> told me i have to be number one so no, <laughs> <laughs> no nobody expected anything of me growing up nothing so if somebody says uh oh i know my my friend uh fatima she's a she's a much better trainer than you she's number one you're number two it doesn't bother you no i'll be like i'm pretty sure she has a great style but doesn't mean that she's better than me like she has her style i have my style that's amazing it's just like it's okay like. so you think that um to be say a good basketball player uh or to a football player that needs to be some element of of aspiring competition yes, in, in you yes. and you don't have that that's the fire that would get you like get you work harder so what's the fire that makes you do a hundred reps or you know squats or something like that then i mean what's the incentive it's super fun the feeling i get during the workout it's like you're getting high literally naturally mm. you're getting high so when i work out i come i'm seeking that feeling that's would come like within 15 minutes when I start working out. Hmm. So that's what I'm looking for. Cause that's like a drug that my body makes that like fades away all the anxiety, all the stress, all the, like helps me gain more, like be more confident, be better person, like, you know, all that. Like that's what I want from my workout. Not, not to be number one in uh, any sense. When it, I mean, the competitive thing has thrown me for a bit of a loop because what I was thinking when you talked about or when I, when I knew that you weren't as interested in sports and team sports, mm -hmm. I wondered to a certain extent if that's a socialized Iranian thing because Iranians, at least on a big national level, and before everybody writes in, I know we have a good you know volleyball team or <laughs> Team Meli does okay once in a while, but... Team sports are not really what Iranians are known for. I mean, certainly when it comes to the Olympics, it's always like one guy weightlifting or yeah. uh, a woman in karate or something like that. It's never, it's never a team kind of sport. And I've heard from friends of mine who grew up in Iran that you know there there are team sports, but it's not as encouraged, especially amongst women, as as individual sports. Do you think yeah. that there's something in that? It could be, yeah. You're not encouraged to um, participate in any type of a sport in general, unless like some, you're in a school. Some some schools like yeah, they encourage it. Like mm. the way I grew up, the community that I was involved in, it was not a thing. Like yeah, I I grew up with people who would say, oh, she lifts too much weight, she wouldn't be able to um, get pregnant later, on. <laughs> like all those like the stereotypes right, about right, lifting right. weights. Right. So hmm. yeah, that that plays a huge like you're brainwashed for like all those stuff with all those stuff. So later on in your life, it's it's hard to kind of like reprogram yourself. I have to imagine a lot of the people watching you are in Iran. I mean, you speak in Persian yes. on your. So, what do they tell you about what you're doing and how you inspire them? Um, I generally get a lot of like um, good comments about like that. It's very inspiring to see somebody who um who make this like fitness like like their whole life is all about fitness 
I also get people who would call me that like I'm not feminine anymore like I don't look like like I look like a man like I lost all my feminine side and all that so I get both but mostly like positive comments um, I've lost my feminine side is, 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 is silly for somebody to say that but how does that make you feel before like maybe like two years ago it would get under my skin or like I would be like have I like, I have a second mm. guess it but now like that feeling that I like even if I have to be honest I don't care like sure I look like a man <laughs> I the way I feel after my workout I don't care because at the end of the day when you sleep you want to like you want to sleep well you want to you don't want to have a stress you don't want to have anxiety and mm. if there's something that helps me in a very healthy way not to have anxiety I'm gonna do it even if I end up looking like a man and, and is that the case that, that is is part of the reason you do what you do uh, the sort of um, undermining anxiety getting rid of stress and anxiety is that what it does for you that's one of the top reasons yes the stress the meaning anxiety. if you weren't working out you usually have anxiety I do yeah on a daily basis things happen like life happens sometimes it could be just like a normal stress sometimes it can escalate to like an anxiety but when I work out it goes away it's so. interesting that you talk about how working out and fitness just is such a great feeling for you because one of the things you said which I inevitably needed to get to um, because it's so interesting to have you on the show because just recently in the last couple of months we've had a couple of sort of fitness people slash doctors who teach nutrition or mm -hmm. preach nutrition etc and so we've been talking about health quite a, quite a bit and I've been worrying about how much Persian food I can eat uh, but one of the things that you've said is uh, you don't believe that people should go to the gym if the intention is to lose weight or that's not what sort of working out should be for um, and that's so interesting to me I want you to tell tell me about that because I really think most of the people I know who go to the gym are partly doing it to keep their weight down or yeah. to, to be slim yes. so so what are we doing wrong with that I mean that that's how I got into it in the first place but that's not something that you can use to um, forever like that's not a good reason to go to the gym like to begin with yeah it's good like to go to the gym like to lose weight but when you go you have to educate yourself or your trainer has to educate you that there's so much more that you are getting out of working out that losing weight should not be your top reason because when you start it takes a while for you to see results if you want to do it in like a healthy way so if that's your number one reason and you keep looking at the scale and then you don't see the result mm. you're not, you're gonna lose your motivation and when you lose your motivation you're gonna stop going when you stop going all those amazing things that you can get from working out you're gonna lose all of those stuff so even with my clients maybe that's not a good thing to do in business but I always like losing weight is the like I I never say it I never tell my client you need to lose weight I always ask them how do you feel how do you sleep do you think like you have more control over your appetite how's your stress mm. like do you feel like you have more energy through the day do you feel like like those are the things I try to point out for them to see that there's so much more you are getting out of this it's not just a so if somebody says I, I really want to lose 10 pounds your prescription is not go on the elliptical machine an hour each day or something I'm asking you, <laughs> if, if somebody wants to lose weight, yeah. you don't believe that the answer is to say, okay, go on the treadmill or go on the elliptical and spend an hour doing that each day. You would lose weight. 
but the key is in consistency mm. like it's not that oh if i go like one week if i work out like and people do that they go to gym three four hours they might drop the weight but it would go back up like immediately mm. so i try to show them like i would not work with somebody if that's like how they want to do it like in two months they want to lose 10 pounds i'm like i don't do that like you have to wait you have to give it this is like my sentence i tell to you you have to give it you have to invest in it for at least six months to start seeing results it wouldn't come in a month if it comes in a month like I would be a little bit like cautious of what's happening. Really? Here. Just for 10 pounds? Yeah. Like I don't mm. like it that way because I've, I've seen so many people that they, they told me stories. Yeah. I went on this diet. I lost 25K uh, kilograms. I, I did this. I did that workout. And I'm like, then why are you here? Like mm. in my head, I would say. <laughs> but right. they, they gain it all back. So what's the point? Like for myself, I, I lost a lot of weight and, and I kept it off all these years because I went slowly about it. And, mm. and, and now I eat a lot of food, even sometimes like I eat a lot of junk food, but I don't gain weight. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> great. So you're not somebody, you're okay with, uh, well, let me get to food in a second. I'm yeah. gonna ask you about food. But um, there is something I've always I always want to ask personal trainers this or fitness people this, uh, which is that when you do a strenuous workout, when I do a strenuous workout, then I want to eat. Yeah, it's usually when I'm not working out that I'm able to eat less. So am I undermining my results by eating a lot after I work out? What are you eating? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, eating, eating. Uh, is this thing, are we on? Is the, are the microphones on? Uh, a baked piece of chicken. Uh, no, <laughs> oh, for I, sure, I, yeah. yeah. Some broccoli and uh, some steamed. No, I, I, you know, I mean, I eat, um, I actually don't eat that badly. I always joke about the fact that I eat badly, but I don't, <laughs> but I, I don't, uh, I eat a lot. Yes. And I sometimes eat uh, junk food, like by which I mean fast food. Fast food, like Pizza, how often? Um, three times a day? No, uh, <laughs> no. You know, two two times a week, three times a week. That's a that's, that's a, a lot. lot. It's yes. a lot. No, I know it yes. is. Yeah, yes. I like. I mean, I've you know, I like hamburgers and things. I yeah. know. I mean, like I I eat like a lot of junk food too, but on occasions. Like I I went to a vacation and I was like I I had whatever I wanted. Mm. Ice cream, gelato. Did you work out on vacation? No, I walked a lot, okay. which helped a lot. Um. I didn't gain weight, even though I ate a lot. Uh, but now that I'm back, I'm back to my routine. So I try to enjoy junk food or like high calorie food when there is like an occasion. Like if I'm in Italy, I'm not gonna go on a diet. Like I'm gonna eat as many pizzas as I can just <laughs> okay. stuff myself in. But when, now that I'm back to my like routine, I'm gonna go back to my routine. Like and I'm, I, I'll try not to cheat. And you are somebody, I know this because I watched you on video cooking, you, you eat meat, red meat. Yes. <laughs> You're okay with that? Um, like I eat a lot of protein because that's good for getting a stronger building muscles and also like for weight loss. Mm. But generally eating a lot of meat, it's not healthy. So if you want to have a healthy diet, um, you should not eat a lot. So like how often do you eat red meat? Every day. Red oh, meat? Yeah. <laughs> uh, not every single day. But, like but you eat meat every day? Yes, oh. like all sort of meat. So yeah. you're not one of those people who say, well, you could get that, substitute that with uh, this and that. You can, like there are, um, there are beans, there are like, like all those stuff, like, but <laughs> you get bloated when you eat all of those mm. stuff and I don't like the feeling, but there, are, there is a healthy way of um, 
um, eating protein for sure. And how do we feel about dairy? I went off there for um, a few years ago. I tried to be vegan for a while. And then as part of that, I went off of um, dairy. Now I only have like yogurt because yogurt is actually good for you because of the probiotics mm -hmm. and stuff. I have like a little bit of a cream in my coffee, but generally I don't have like milk and stuff. No, no, no panina in the morning. No, I mean, if I'm trying to go all Persian, like that, I would well, well, no. try to go. We are Persian. <laughs> well, I try to go all Persian. This inevitably we get to the point in the interview where I'm, where I'm just hoping to find somebody who will go. Of course, Nuna Panin is great for you. And then they would look at me in shock. No, no. I, who eats that? I um, like to start my day with protein and like eggs and stuff. Sometimes uh, even chicken. What, eggs and chicken. Well, I was going to say, what's what besides eggs? What do you eat in the morning? Like um, I have like these special type of bread. No, I wouldn't call them special, like very healthy breads, like they're called sprouted, um, a sprouted toast. Okay. I get them and they're very Sprouted good. toast? S a sprouted, yes. Okay. I might say the name wrong, it's sprouted, like um, the thing. What's it made of? Um, the wheat and stuff. But no, it is the wheat. wheat it's, is, it's, okay, it's it, bread. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's bread. But the wheat is uh, sprouted. Okay. So they, I, I, I listened to a lot of podcasts that they said that this is a healthier version of bread. And I have that with protein always. No mm. rice. And no cheese. No, I, I don't buy those stuff unless somebody brings it to my house. You I don't, don't buy it, meaning if you did buy it, if it was sitting in the fridge, you might use it? Yes. Like, oh. like if, if there is junk okay. food, I would eat it. So okay. I try not, like so when I go to... So just not put it in the cupboard. Yes. I try to keep a very um, clean cupboard um, fridge. <laughs> <laughs> I even try I not... I guess I should try that. Maybe that'll help <laughs> Yes. Me. If, yeah, because yeah. if it's there, I'll eat it. Like if, if you give me a bag of chips like this... You would I, eat it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Like, I, like that's right. why I don't buy. So it. you're human, like the rest of us. It's <laughs> yeah. not. Uh, it's not. I'm not. I'm not the only person that has tr trouble with that. It's yeah. true. I keep all of those things in my cupboard, and then once in a while, I say, "Oh, now, it's, there. it's there." I mean, I don't want eat. it to go bad. <laughs> don't buy it. <laughs> Do you when you um, post videos of say with red meat, etc.? Since you have such a large audience, yeah. I mean, some of these videos have quarter million views, etc. Do, are there people who say you're a fitness person? Why are you preaching meat or why are you using some of these things? I mean, do you get that kind of criticism? I get vegan people to kind of uh, criticizing me on like, oh, these are animals. Like, why are you doing this and that? Which I understand their point, but it's their point. So mm. not mine. It doesn't stop you. No, it doesn't. Not for now. What What's the key to being a great personal trainer? Um. So you... Yeah, your skills. Honestly, training people, like giving people exercises is so easy. Like, it's just there's not much to it. What comes down to it is how you how you communicate with, with people. Like a squad is a squad. You can teach a squad. I, like anybody can teach a squad. There's nothing like so like anything special about it. But how you teach somebody a squad, how you, um, my English is kind of... <laughs> Like it's about how you communicate mm. to people with people that like I think most of my clients, they liked me and they kept working with me because of the relationship we started having and not necessarily about the exercises. Like I mm. try to make things fun. I try to change things. I try to give them an experience every time they come in. But it's not about like a squad or lunges and like those are the very easy parts of being a trainer. Being a trainer is like for one hour. You are their best friend, and they have to trust you. They have to love you, and they ha so so that they can accept whatever you're asking them to do. Mm. Um, 
And you believe people should have a personal trainer, obviously. Yes, yes. I, I've always, people. it's always been my experience that I never work out alone the way I do if I have a personal trainer. Right. They always yeah. push me to the, a place that I wouldn't normally go. Exactly. But I yes. can, it's expensive. It is very expensive. Yeah. I mean, who can afford to <laughs> have hire somebody it's a few times expensive. a week to... <laughs> I know. It's very expensive to be a trainer, too, because um, I'm like my hourly rate might be semi-sound high, but the number of hours I can work and like my job security and everything is like, it's very risky right, to be right, a trainer. Right, right. Like I have to be open like 24 seven if I want to make very good money. Right. And it's very hard. Like if I want to go on a vacation, I'm not going to make any money. If I get sick, I'm not going to make any right, money. Right. People cancel on you, things happen. So it's very risky. Right. To be even a, with you, even if you're with a big club or something, they, they don't. They seldom pay big salaries. It's you. It's based on how many people you're training and all of that. Right? Yes, and most gyms, like there are high-end ones, um, but most gyms they would pay you a fraction of what they're um, making. Right, right. So you can never um, make like good good money. Do you? Is there a time limit on? I mean, I, mean, I see there's older folks who are still personal trainers. Yeah. Do you worry about that? Do you worry that there's a best before date on how long you can do this? I used to be like very worried about that part. That oh my god, I don't want to be like forty and I still like just a trainer. Yeah, like, that doesn't sound that's like that's gonna be weird. I, I I don't know what that's gonna be like when I hit forty, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I'm with you. It's scary. <laughs> it's yeah. like you just want to like your social status. You want it to kind of grow with you. Okay. You know, I don't want to be like just a trainer. So I have plans for that. Like I we don't want to take anything away from people who are trainers. Who no. are you, personal traders? Oh no, yeah, oh my, fifties. Yes. You know, they might be doing a. The, yeah, it depends they might on love how their you job. do it. Yeah, it, it depends on how you do it. Like, no, there is no like expiry date on being a trainer. It's it's a fun job. It's a great job, um, but you like you have to kind of like add more to it. You have to like start having your own business. Make like this is what I my plan is. I want to make my training and my style like I want to make it into a brand. That's where I'm mm. heading. Um, so yeah <laughs> what kind of a brand like I have this specific um, way that I train clients um, the way I design the exercises the way I design the workout like the whole session so I'm trying to make that into like a system I, I already have it to great extent so I'm trying to make that into a brand so I can like teach other trainers this is a very great mm. way to train people mm. because I had great success people would come people have fun and that's a very important thing when you're working with people who are like working moms, who are like doctors or they their lifestyle is anything but fitness or like healthy life. So when they come to you, you want to give them like a great experience that they, they would feel alive. They would feel like energetic. So the way I do it, I had great success. So I realized maybe if I can turn it into like a system and teach other people i don't see why you can't you've got a big following already and it's growing that, all the that's time, the right? plan <laughs> what's the biggest mistake that people make when it comes to fitness and wanting to exercise and going into this they stop mm. yeah that's the only mistake there's i i can't think of like i would say go try as many diets not like in a sense that like go do crazy things but just try try different things go to kickboxing class go to swimming go to dancing get a trainer but don't stop. That's the only thing. How Just many times should we work out a week? Um, Every day? Mi 
yeah you want to be physically active every day for sure but like training like workout sessions two to three times is like very ideal but you definitely want to be active physically active but like going for a walk going for like dance classes or something every day are your parents still back in iran or are they here um my dad passed away oh, of course i'm sorry yes and my mom is here yes your mom's here yes and how does she feel about your growing internet stardom uh, in the fitness world she's not a fan <laughs> she's not a fan <laughs> i thought she <laughs> were gonna say she was really proud of me and <laughs> if she could she would take it and delete it <laughs> really yes. why is she not a fan she's very religious ah yeah so um it's it was a struggle to kind of do everything i do and have her blessing <laughs> So she doesn't like it. Like she would always message me, delete this video. Delete because this. you're, uh, she. I mean, forgive me. I don't know a lot about religion. So she, I'm assuming she's Muslim. It's an yes. Islam, right? Yes. And and Vazishki, we, we, we can work out in Islam. That's yes. that's not the problem. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? that's not the, the issue. being fit is not the problem. It's that you're showing too much skin. Yes. Or, uh, I yes. See. That right. that's the uh, that's the part she has a lot of problem with. But to be honest, that never stopped me. <laughs> like uh, I don't, I don't, I felt a little bit guilty about it, uh -huh. but I realized it makes me happy and I'm not doing anything wrong. So I kept doing it and no regret. <laughs> I'm sure on some level, she's very proud and happy that you're. She sure doesn't show it. <laughs> 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 I mean, she loves me. She right. was, she would never There's always the textile me. engineering to <laughs> go back to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's a great pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank Say you. Say hi so to your much. mom. Tell her we're of proud course. of you. Uh, it's and and um, it's really fun to follow you, and it's exciting to see how things are growing for you. And I'm, oh. uh, and by the way, you you were saying earlier that you don't think your English is great. I mean, I can't believe you've only been here five or six years. Your English yeah. is immaculate. There's really yes. thank you so much. Congratulations. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Uh, much better than my Persian. Merci. <laughs> Merci, <laughs> Bye bye. Faizeh Samai is a Toronto-based Iranian personal fitness trainer and the woman behind the extremely popular Instagram channels called Faiz Fitness and more Faiz. Faizeh Samai joined us in the Rook studio today. has exited the studio the fabulous Keon has come back in and the microphone on for Groovy Shia yeah. she's impressive yes I appreciate her courage toward like because she said uh, her mother she's a little mm. bit religious <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah. that threw me for a loop in, uh, there at the end because I, I thought uh, I just assume right. you know it's such a gimme question it's like what do your parents think yeah. oh they're so proud of me and no. she was like yeah, she hates it she wants me to quit <laughs> um, no I'm sure she's proud of it nope she uh, <laughs> doesn't show that at all yeah. yeah I was gonna say like how amazing that she turned such a sad time in her life into something so positive you mm. know it takes a lot of courage and strength to first of all like doing social media is not easy i i couldn't do what she does you know 24 no. 7. so to well, she really opens to, herself up right so to go from such a low point in her life and just turn it into something positive and public i'm you know i'm still kudos. marinating over what she just she just said because 
what do you make of it's she seems like such a paradox that she's she basically says she's an introvert mm. but but through instagram through social media because i even said how do you feel about opening yourself up she said mm. well i'm i'm fine as long as it's me and the camera mm. you know her posts have like a quarter of a million hits on them but she's okay yeah. with that yeah, yeah. but in person it's you know it's not interesting it's like a lot of actors and actresses that are actually shy in person but they say behind the camera they're comfortable because that's right. you know they're right. playing a part i guess right but yeah that's an interesting and, the, and, and i'd say like don't you think you're sort of the inverse of that I find exactly you. That. I find you exactly kind of shy that. on camera, but yeah. but but in person, you're a personality. Yeah, yeah. It, I thought about that too. It's so funny how that works out. And it was such. It's so interesting that uh, again, I'm. I, I tend to. My reflex is always to be negative about social media. Mm-hmm. So to hear that Instagram was her lifeline. Mm-hmm. Yes. So interesting. Yes. What do you make of that, Shia? You're not. You're not even on social media. No, but I can get the like being introvert but in front of camera another person because i think i am kind of like that i am a shy i think i am a shy person but like on stage i am, I am not shy right so right right i get but she but she's it's not just on stage i mean she i mean i invite people to follow her because she's it's really great it's fun inspiring stuff she does but you, you know you see her messy bedroom you see what she's yeah. looking like first thing in the morning i mean it's really expositional i mean yeah. she's exposing herself yeah. um <laughs> it's amazing definitely i cannot do that like yeah. to show my life no I, I, but that's why you're not th- i mean i'm i'm kind of similar and it, that's why we're not good at social media no. hmm. I, I, you know i said in that when i was saying to her a moment ago but uh the in the 21st century the people mm-hmm. who are comfortable on camera win you know yes. Yes. i'm comfortable on camera i guess but not so opening she, my private life like a, a, you know yeah. showing she's behind just, the, yeah like your personal like my life. messy kitchen or what yeah, I wouldn't, yeah, yeah, yeah i'm just like uh that's the i hear my mother's voice oh my god oh man my that's the other my mom would be all over it too like delete it delete it. <laughs> yeah yeah it's just like it's all, at the end of the day it's all about defying our mothers uh, the other thing the other thing is uh, don't go to the gym if you just want to lose weight oh yeah I thought that was interesting you disagree? I mean, people go to the gym for different reasons. Um, for me, it's, it's kind of just the lifestyle. Like, it's more so for my mental well-being. It's like, yes, I I need to right. lose weight. And but like yeah, get you're the first shape, person like, in the winter when, when you're, you're like, oh, I'm into the gym, I'm gaining weight. Yeah. That's your thing. Like, I go there to lose weight? Yeah. Yeah, of course. But part of it is also my <laughs> mental health. Like, for me, it's yeah, such for a, sure. you know, I'd be miserable. But I it. go to gym to gain weight, actually. That's, I mean, I, I go to gym to gain weight, uh, not you, to lose weight. You don't seem to be gaining any weight, so you haven't been to the gym no, in a while. Yes, yes. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, but really? Back then, You yeah. go and then you get hungry and... Yes, how, yes because I, 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 like, now I was too skinny and I went to gym to, like, huh. gain weight. And, yeah. I think what she was saying is that if your only incentive is losing weight, you will lose interest. I think she said that. Like, if you keep going to the gym mm-hmm. only to lose weight, like it's it won't be intre- Like it won't be a lifestyle that you're yeah, embracing. Yeah, well, that goes with everything. You have to make it part of who you are and make it a lifestyle so you can continue doing it. Mm-hmm. But if you're only going to lose weight for like by X date, 
at some point you're not gonna right, you know you're, too. It, yeah, it, the yeah, gym is not yeah. a part of who you are yeah oh so. no she said if you lose 10 pounds mm-hmm. what's it in a month or something yeah like that? you'll gain it right back and it's no just, she said you're not that's not how you're doing something wrong she said that's not in a mu- no she said two months right? two months two months know. something like that all I know is now I don't have to lose that weight <laughs> based on what she said. I love that she wasn't policing the diets too. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, she eats. I mean, it's, I, it's all about met, I can't say the word probably met, met, uh, metabolism. metabolism. God, I was like, how do you pronounce that word? Metabolism. That's a, that's yeah, a tough, so you have very to, average word. <laughs> I just don't say it so often. <laughs> right, right. But uh, no, I, that's the point. You have to build up your metabolism so then your body on its own is going to be burning. Yes. You know? So. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you to Faizé Samayi for coming in. Thanks to you guys for those comments. Uh, before we get to the legendary Dr. Dick Davis, who's coming up, and as I said earlier, you don't want to miss this conversation because Dr. Davis, he's this award-winning British poet who has been the primary translator of everything from Hafez to Uncle Napoleon and uh, into English over the years. And he has a very special relationship with Iran where he lived and taught before the revolution. He joins me coming up. But first, we would be remiss if we did not deal with another sad, if not absurd situation around human rights and free speech developing in Iran again. You may have heard about this. The Islamic Republic of Iran, in its latest crackdown on dissent, has arrested three prominent film directors, Jafar Panahi, Mohammad Rasulov, and Mustafa Ahmad. So the story is that Rasulov, who's an award-winning director, was arrested along with his colleague Ola Ahmad for posting a statement on social media simply urging members of the Iranian security forces to lay down their weapons following protests over the Abadan building collapse last month, which, of course, killed over 40 people. Then the great director Jafar Panahi, who had gone to the prosecutor's office in Tehran last Monday evening to check on Rasulov, was also arrested by security forces. They all remained detained. And joining me to talk about this is a man who's no stranger to great filmmaking or being arrested in Iran for his work and opinions. Babak Payomi is an award-winning Iranian-Canadian film director. He won the Silver Lion for Best Director at the Venice Film Festival in 2001. And he's currently finishing a new film that will get announced very soon. But first, Babak Payomi joins me from Aurora, Ontario today. Hello, sir. Hello, Gian. Very good to be with you and... I hope you're having a wonderful time. Thank you. Welcome back to Rook, Babak Jana. Uh, last week, I mean, you're the perfect person to speak about this because you wrote a piece in Kahan Life about your own arrest almost 20 years ago and how events in Iran are like Groundhog Day, like nothing has changed, uh, you say. What, what can you tell us about the, the details of this latest incident as you know them that involves your friends getting arrested again? Uh, Well, not much beyond uh, what is in the news. Uh, I am, of course, following closer than most. Uh, I'm in contact regularly with the folks uh, on the ground there. Uh, Rasulov and Ola Ahmad were arrested on the 8th. Uh, Their homes were raided. And, uh, of course, uh, it goes without saying how uh, humiliating and vulgar such incidents are where people are uh, 
basically uh, swarmed in their homes uh, with their families there. And I can only imagine uh, by firsthand experience, I could say, uh, what this experience feels like for uh, not only ourselves but, but our families and loved ones who have to witness such vulgarity. A couple of days later, along with several other filmmakers, uh, Jafar um, goes to the judiciary offices to uh, inquire about what's going on and also demand their immediate release uh, uh, as, as uh, they should. And of course, Jafar doesn't make it out and uh, they arrest him and, and throw him in with the other two uh, as well. So the details in terms of the, uh, how it happened, as I mentioned, two of them were raided in their homes and, mm-hmm. and Jafar mm-hmm. was arrested on site there when he was at their offices. And, and the pretext of these arrests is this statement on social media. I mean, is that, is that a pretext or is that something that's uh, this statement really that threatening to this regime? Well, no, it goes deeper than that. And, and I think that's just a, a recent example of it. Uh, in my view, uh, the the regime in Iran, and I, I, I hesitate to call it a government because it, it, it doesn't have the characteristics of, of, of a meaningful government. It's just basically a, a, a system uh, that is based on uh, lies, deceit, terror, uh, persecution, and violence, and, and somehow they manage to sustain their own existence uh, on that level. They have the biggest problem with the arts community. Uh, Artists by nature are not partisan or uh, ideologically tainted, and they are confronting a a system that is deeply ideological, a borderline, if not outright fascist in my view. Uh, So the problem is much deeper than the statement. The problem is the fact that uh, filmmakers who are working independently, who are uh, not... um, uh, letting themselves be subjugated to to a system of censorship and, uh, if you like, ideological contamination through various means uh, that has escalated over the years, they cannot tolerate them. I mean, uh, the regime in Iran can maybe build factories or, uh, you know, uh, control industry with their means uh, and and their full and outright control of of the uh, country's resources, but they cannot manufacture artists Mm. and art and culture. And that is the fundamental clash between the artist community and them. Uh, The most recent incident, if I may just uh, bridge back to that, is uh, many filmmakers and artists uh, uh, in the community inside Iran uh, they were basically disgusted by what is happening uh, where a building uh, collapses, people are, are devastated, and instead of sending rescue forces, they send uh, SWAT teams to suppress people who are uh, protesting against uh, the deep-rooted uh, corruption in, in, in the country that results in buildings being built uh, such that they will collapse. And uh, the artists gathered together and issued a statement to the armed forces and the police Mm. organizations of the country telling them to put their weapons down and not to use their weapons against their own people. A peaceful statement. And that is the last sort of incident that 
uh, heightened uh, the attention of, of uh, the Iranian regime uh, towards uh, filmmakers. So, so part of the um, sadness around something like this, Babak, is is the the feeling that nothing changes, that we're, we don't see progress over time um, in a, in in the direction of of a more open society. Uh, it's been forty three years, and and it's, it's it feels like Groundhog Day, as I said. Uh, tell me on that note, I mean, just to to kind of reflect on it, what happened with you and, in fact, Jafar Panahi together? You guys were together uh, about 19 years ago. Yeah, uh, it was around June, early uh, June uh, of 2003. Uh, Jafar and I were running some errands in, in, in his car, in fact, uh, in downtown Tehran. And uh, we, he had parked the car somewhere and we were walking back towards his car and we were swarmed by several um, plainclothed uh, agents. Uh, you can tell from their demeanor and, and the, the look on their faces that they're not the normal types. And uh, Jafar and I, I think, uh, were wondering each to ourselves which one of us is being arrested here. And I thought Jafar is being arrested. Within a matter of a few minutes, a big crowd gathered around there. Possibly some people recognized us. They separated us on the sidewalk. And before I know it, I was thrown in the back of a unmarked vehicle with two agents on either side and one sitting in the front who seemed to be a figure of authority. And the last thing I could remember is I looked back out the rear uh, windshield of the car and saw Jafar struggling with the agents who were standing with him yeah. uh, in turn uh, and asking possibly where they're taking me and uh, that was the beginning of the end of my uh, stay in Iran right you know you you actually make the case in this piece that you wrote last week that it's not just um it's not just that, that nothing ever changes, but you, you believe that things have actually gotten worse today than two decades ago. And Babak, many, many, many people have seen this as part of a, a larger clampdown in recent weeks in Iran that isn't just about the arts community, as you said, the filmmakers, uh, but is about general dissent in Iran and, and, and really trying to suppress something that's bubbling. Why, why now? Why do you think this is happening? Well, I think things um, fluctuate. Uh, they have come to a head at the moment. But if you look at the 43-year-old history of the Islamic Republic regime, almost every 10 years, uh, something major has happened. And, and the people have had enough. Uh, but uh, I think part of it is the... Uh, the, the, the general population, the Iranian uh, people are becoming more focused on what exactly the problem is. Right. Uh, and and uh, that, that this regime under n the current uh, circumstances, in fact, in my view, uh, no iteration of this regime with the mechanisms, the people in power and the constitution of the Islamic Republic have uh, no outlook towards any kind of improvement and reconciliation with the people. Uh, so it is something that every once in a while it peaks. Sometimes it peaks in the uh, um, uh, provinces, uh, not in the central uh, 
capital cities of the provinces and sometimes uh, it happens in major centers such as Tehran. We experienced that in 1988, we experienced that in 1998 and uh, uh, 2009. Uh, the, 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 the what was uh, famously called uh, the bloody November where uh, people were killed, uh, shot in the head, young people were, were just indiscriminately uh, killed and many, uh, some reports say a few thousand have been arrested and nobody knows what their fate is. Mm. And now is another, if not a turning point, it is another climax in the confrontation between the Iranian people and uh, the state that is uh, ruling them and is abusing them and all the resources of that great, rich uh, nation. Can I ask you to reflect on um, when we hear news like this, the arrest of filmmakers, um, I don't know if we had you on the line yet, but I I, I talked at the beginning of our show uh, um, about just how normalized this has all become. we hear about someone like Jafar Panahi, by the way, I, I'm such a fan and I've had the great fortune to interview him. We hear about Jafar Panahi being arrested and there's this kind of sense in the Iranian community of shaking our heads, but we don't really react with the kind of shock that at this point that we might have if, um, I don't know, if Martin Scorsese was arrested by the CIA for having an opinion, you know? How do we fight the feeling of acceptance or complacency when such events happen with such tragic regularity in Iran? Uh, It it is a problem. And and, and in fact, uh, the Iranian regime has normalized corruption uh, and uh, violence to such an extent that if you look at videos of, of the streets of Tehran, people are agitated and uh, there, there is an extreme level of indignant behavior by the regime organizations. And, and I think it, it is a major problem that we have to look into. On the one hand, uh, uh, we also have to also understand that the, the people in Iran are uh, suffering economically uh, as well as uh, their basic human rights in terms of basic freedoms that they enjoy. And they are overwhelmed. Every day something happens. Right. And uh, um, the, the minority within the country uh, who can afford to or who have the resolve and, and, and the motivation and passion to not remain silent, as well as a lot of us who are outside of the country, uh, and, and have the means uh, as well as the passion to speak out, we must do so. And uh, part of it also has to do with how we engage with the international community from uh, institutions and organizations all the way up to the United Nations to uh, members of parliament in our localities to, to talk with them, convey to them how serious this matter is and, and help um, neutralize this normalization of violence and corruption, Mm. because I feel like uh, foreign governments, the international community are narrowing down. And and, and I wrote another piece um, recently about um, a strategy that the Western countries boast uh, being decoupling of issues, which I traced it back. I I found a bug in the software 
in the operating system of Western democracies that uh, I traced back to the Nixon era and his foreign policy doctrine to decouple issues in negotiations with authoritarian uh, regimes. Uh, let's talk about the uh, this one specific topic, be it nuclear or an oil deal or something, and forget about everything else. And mm. I think that is a travesty. It is a fallacy that has devastated uh, the Iranian people, the people of Syria, uh, people of Iraq, Afghanistan. And, and I think the, the example of Russia blowing up in our face by uh, attacking Ukraine is something that is a rude awakening to Western powers. And, and going back to what you said, I find it our duty to engage as people over the last 43 years, a few million Iranians live abroad and a good chunk of them have become uh, citizens of these countries. And yes. we have to be proactive and be the voice of freedom, of human rights, of democracy for the Iranian people and uh, divorce ourselves, especially in the arts community, from ideological and partisan contamination of the discourse. Well, that's a perfect segue to um, a final question to you, which is that uh, the news came out today, um, or at least I saw it on uh, a story that came out today, uh, that the International Coalition for Filmmakers at Risk, the ICFT, this is an Amsterdam-based body set up in uh, 2019 to support cinema professionals in danger, has just posted an open letter addressing this recent crackdown on Iran's filmmaking community in which they say the international film community must speak up. So what what do you hope to hear from the global filmmaking community and who do you hope to hear it from? First of all, I, I welcome this uh, recent uh, announcement and statement and, and I've been myself playing my part in writing personally to organizations and individuals in the international film community to not only issue statements, but also uh, take action, uh, do what we can in, 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 uh, basically act to impress upon these people that they cannot uh, persecute uh, artists uh, with impunity. And, and we have to, I think, uh, resonate with the coalition of international coalition of uh, filmmakers in, in danger and uh, bring together a coalition among film festivals, not by way of sanctions and, and uh, sort of closing the doors on Iranian filmmakers, but opening the door and making sure that uh, the, the governments, the international organizations throughout the world take action against these kinds of acts by the Iranian regime and not uh, just leave it to uh, statements of sympathy and empathy because uh, what's happening on the ground there needs much more than that. Now, what are those uh, things that we can do in order to uh, uh, translate uh, those statements into action is something that I don't want to prescribe, but I'm sure that, that once we get together and, and maybe have a conference, have a, a meeting where we invite also politicians and uh, international, other international organizations, we can come up with a list of effective means to uh, isolate the Iranian state and protect and open the doors for Iranian artists. 
I, I think the, the, the details of that that I have in mind uh, doesn't lend itself to the time we have here, but I'm sure that uh, putting our minds together, we can go beyond, and it is about time that we go beyond just statements. Babak Payami, I know these uh, these issues are close to your heart, and those folks um, sitting in jail right now in Iran are not just Iranian citizens or great filmmakers, but they're your friends. And um, it's always energizing speaking to you. Thank you for doing this today. Thank you very much for, for the time, and uh, I wish you all the best. And hopefully very soon we'll hear uh, Jafar, uh, Al Ahmad, and Rasulov uh, safely out uh, and doing their work. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Babak Payami, an award-winning Iranian-Canadian film director. We reached him in Aurora, Canada today. Well, if you want to learn about Persian literature and poetry, one of the most esteemed and best-known names you might turn to is actually a non-Iranian. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and has been hailed as the finest translator of Persian poetry. That's right. My featured guest today, Dr. Dick Davis, is an award-winning British-born poet university professor, translator, and leading scholar of Persian poetry, who's made it his lifelong mission to introduce Persian medieval poetry and literature to the Western world. Dr. Davis received his MA in English literature from Cambridge back in the 1960s. A strong desire to travel took him to the East. He moved to Tehran in 1970 and started teaching English at the University of Tehran. He met his life companion there and has collaborated with her in some of his translations and the chaos of the revolutionary period in Iran, Dr. Davis returned with his wife to the UK in 1978 and set about obtaining his PhD in medieval Persian from Manchester University. In the UK, he taught at Durham and Newcastle, and after subsequently moving to the United States, he has taught at UCSB and at Ohio State University, where he was a professor of Persian and the chair of the Department of New Eastern Languages and Cultures. His books of translations include Borrowed Ware, Medieval Persian Epigrams, The Shah Nameh, The Legend of Silvash, Rostam, Tales of Love and War from Persia's Book of Kings, and Faces of Love, Hafez, and the Poets of Shiraz. And Dr. Davis's own poems about Iran include At Home and Far From Home, poems on Iran and Persian culture. And of course, he is famously the translator of the very popular landmark novel by Iraj Pezikzad, My Uncle Napoleon. And right now, Dr. Dick Davis joins me from Columbus, Ohio today. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you very much for that very generous introduction. What a great pleasure and honor it is for me to speak to you. I, I can tell you that um, much of what I've read of Persian poetry and literature, uh, I've read your words uh, as much as I've read the author's words. So uh, it's, it's an honor. Thanks for doing this. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking me. Um, by the way, you are in the Midwest, but I understand that you and your wife, Afkham, have found a fertile Persian community in, in Columbus, Ohio? Yes, there's quite a nice Persian community in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and uh, yeah, most of our, most of, almost all our friends are Iranians belonging to this local Iranian community. Um, and we've been here for over 30 years, so it's quite a, 
we we have a small circle who we see pretty well all the time, uh, and most of them have been here for almost as, as long. So it's a well-established little community. You, you still um, don't sound like an American Midwesterner. I guess you can take the boy out of Portsmouth, but um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're you're right. I, it depends. Um, you're right. Uh, when I, I my mother's passed now, but when I used to go home to see her. She used to say to me, Richard, you have an American accent. And I said, well, nobody in America thinks I have an American <laughs> accent. <clears throat> I think it's a bit transatlantic now, mid-Atlantic mid now. It's sort of somewhere in between the two. It's very, it's a very elegant anyway. I, that, let's put it that way. Dr. Davis, well, I, nice. I want to ask you about the approach and the, the responsibilities of being a high-profile, world-renowned translator. But uh, let me first ask you about your life journey, because I, I think... I think it, it, it should be quite fascinating for people of Iranian descent to hear about how you fell in love with Iran and, and Persian culture. And let me start with a general question. Um, as I intimated in the, in the intro there, or said it directly, I should say, uh, you've made it this mission to bring uh, Persian literature and poetry to the Western world. Why? Well, uh, I went to Iran in 1970. I was 25 in 1970, so I was a young man. Um, and uh, through various events happening there and people I met and so forth, I really fell in love with the country and, and the culture. And I think I would have stayed indefinitely if the Islamic Revolution hadn't happened. Um, and, and the reason I left was not especially because of the revolution. It was because the universities were closed, and so I wasn't getting a salary. Um, so I, I didn't have anything to live off. Um, so uh, I and my wife, we married in 1974. Um, I and, uh, and my wife, we returned, we went, we went to England. And um, I realized that I had begun to read Persian poetry then. I had a very good teacher in Iran. When I was an undergraduate, it was the medieval period I was most interested in. And uh, even for somebody who knows almost nothing about Persian literature, um, which I, I was in that position when I went there in 1970, the, the fact that Persia, Iran had a great medieval literature, I knew that much, although I, I couldn't read any of it or mm. just little bits in translation. And so because I was interested in Western medieval literature, I thought I would try and read Persian medieval literature. And as I say, I, I was lucky to find a very good teacher. And so I started to read it, and I really did fall in love with it. One of the things that I noticed was that in many ways it's very similar to, to European medieval literature. There are many similarities, which we can talk about later if you like uh, but there are also of course major differences and so this 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 sense of f familiarity and unfamiliarity together i found really intriguing <clears throat> and persian poetry one of the things i've always liked about poetry um, and this might seem very obvious to an Iranian, but it's not necessarily obvious to a Westerner, is that I like the beauty of the poetry. And, and beauty is, is, of course, people in, in, in the West, in, in Europe, they, they like poetry to be beautiful, but it's not often the major thing. Um, it, is in, it is in a place like Italy, for example, but not in England. Mm. English poetry doesn't particularly try to be beautiful. It tries to tell the truth. It tries to be accurate. Um, it tries to sort of um, change things. It, 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 it tries to be psychological, all sorts of things. And beautiful among them, but beautiful isn't first. And one of the things that I really loved about Persian poetry was the, the, the fact that it, it, it valued beauty so much, that beauty was so important in it. And that was something that I, I hadn't really come across in English literature, mm. for example. 
I mean, it, it's interesting because taking a few steps back and and if I can just pick up on a number of um, things along the way that you've, you've, you've just ta- mentioned. Uh, first of all, you didn't come, as I understand it, you didn't come from a family of academics. You grew up in a, in a town called Withersnee in Yorkshire in England, and you credit a teacher or a headmaster at your school for getting you interested in poetry in the first place. Did you have any exposure at all to, to Persian literature or poetry when you were a, a kid in Britain? Well, um, not really. I mean, I read I read Fitzgerald's translation of Omar Khayyam, and that was about it. I mean, that's 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 all that I knew. Of course, when I was young, <clears throat> I'm in my seventies now. But when I was young, which is yeah, it's a long time ago, um, Omar Khayyam's Fitzgerald's Omar Khayyam was still a book that you would see in most households that had any books. It was a it was in, in a way it's very strange. It's, a, it's obviously it's a translation. But in a way, it was the most popular book of poetry that existed when it when it was published. It, it published in 1859, and it, by the end of the 19th century, it was it was the best-selling book of poetry in all of England of, of any kind of poet at all. And so that was in in our house mm. because um, my my family were not especially educated, but th- there were lots of books in the house, and that was there. But that was the o- that was the only example I had of, of medieval poetry. And I'm guessing so you you had this. Somebody would say Iran, and you had this sort of exotic impression of this place this eastern uh, mystical place yes you're right you're right and of course fitzgerald i mean I, fitzgerald's translation is a, is a wonderful work in english uh, and it does it does convey quite a lot of what's in Khayyam, although it's as many people have pointed out it's not especially accurate but fitzgerald himself never went anywhere near iran he never went east of paris mm. and so his notion of iran was an entirely fanciful one mm. and so the iran you get from his translations is it it's not it's not a, it's it's a kind of um romantic european version of iran it's not it's not it's not any kind of truth in fact but it's very charming so so by the time you're at cambridge you're studying english medieval poetry uh, That's right. how does the how does the boy from um, portsmouth who grew up in withersnee who's at cambridge studying english uh, poetry end up traveling to first italy and then iran by 1970 well um Various things happened when I was a, a young man that meant that when I graduated from Cambridge, when I went down, uh, I wanted to leave England. I wanted to get away. I wanted to sort of see the world a bit. Also, this was the 1960s, and it was very common for people to sort of take off for a while, especially Europeans, to take off and sort of go on a hippie trail or something like that. I didn't actually do that, but I, I was part of that general sort of get out and see the world feeling that there was in the 1960s. And it was much easier to do then than it is now. And it was much safer to do it then than it it is now. Um, And also, I I mean, it was was only 20 years since the Second World War was over and Europe was being um, rebuilt. And there was, it was very easy to get a job. It wasn't as if you went to a, a new country and you didn't know whether you'd get a job or not. It was very easy to do so. So first I went to Greece, and I, I had a very good time in Greece, but then there was the coup in Greece. So there was a, a fascist coup in, in 1967, so I left Greece. Then I went to Italy, and I had a great time in Italy, and I really, uh, I, I, I almost... What Iran has become to me, it almost happened in Italy. But for one reason or another, it didn't. Uh, And then I had a friend who I had been an undergraduate with. We'd been together as students. And he's still one of my closest friends. And he was on an archaeological dig in Iran. Um, This is in 1969, I think. 
And um, he wrote to me saying that he, he loved the country. It was so beautiful. He was having such a great time. And although he was there just for the summer to help on the dig, he wasn't an important archaeologist or anything. He was just somebody who'd gone to sort of um, do, the, do the amateur bit <clears throat> of digging things up and brushing things off and cataloging things and that kind of thing. But he'd had such a wonderful time. He said, I'm going to stay in Iran and get a job teaching English for a year. Why don't you come? And you'll enjoy it, I know, mm. because... Uh, we had been in Italy together and he knew how much I enjoyed Italy and he said you'll have so I did so I went there and I went there in theory for two years I went with a two year contract but by the time I was getting towards the end of the two years I had met Afram who I finally married uh, and I wanted to stay so when that two year contract was finished so so hang on a second these are pivotal years you're rushing through here that's right the first what tell, tell me about your first impressions when you get to to Tehran, um, because I mean, one, one, the romantic version of this story is that you arrive in Iran and go, oh, wow, and it fills your heart because you know that for the rest of your life, you're going to be dedicating your, yourself to this place. Was it like that? Or h- how, did you, how did you feel when you first got there? It wasn't quite like that. And I, of course, I first got there in, I got there to Tehran, which was, uh, you know, it was a modern city of the 1960s, especially if you were in the center of Tehran, which is where all the foreigners like me tended to be. Um, to see anything that was remotely like um, a European might imagine Iran to be, you had to certainly leave Tehran. and You, you probably had to leave the cities altogether. Uh, and of course, at the beginning, I didn't do that. So it wasn't that foreign at the beginning. What was all that was the main thing that was foreign was was the language and of course there are cultural differences that you pick up but I had lived in different cultures I I expected cultural differences and they didn't particularly faze me Um, the thing that was crucial the thing that sort of changed everything for me was what sounded like something very negative which is I got very ill Hmm. I had been in in Iran I went in September I think in 1970 and by 1971 I think February February 1971 I, I, I was very ill and I finished up in hospital, and um, there was a nurse there who I fell in love with, who is now my wife. And it was because of her that I stayed. Wow. And it was because of her that I started to get really serious about Iranian culture, because I really fell in love with her very strongly. It wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a, well, this will be interesting for a month kind of thing. It was, a, I want this for the rest of my life kind of wow. thing. I didn't realize, I didn't know the nurse part. I didn't know that that's where you guys met. It's a, it's, a, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit the English patient, isn't it? <laughs> it is the English patient, actually, yes. <laughs> it's very similar. And, uh, of course, if I was, if I was going to... Um, I, um, I knew quite soon that I wanted to marry Afram. Afram was much more cautious about this than I was. <laughs> I mean, she, it took, took her quite a long time to say, well, yes, that's possible, perhaps, in the future. Um, but I knew that if, I was go- if it was going to happen, I knew enough about Iranian culture to know that she just couldn't take off and marry me, that I had to get to know her family, her family had to accept me, and all that. And I realized if I was going to do that, I had to really immerse myself in Persian culture, try and learn Persian, try and... Uh, adapt to the to the to the kind of social customs of Iran um, in a way that I wouldn't have done if I hadn't have met Afghan. I, I My stay in Iran would have been something like my stay in Italy. I'd have stayed for a couple of years and thought that was a wonderful culture. Now I go somewhere else. But because I met Afghan, I didn't go somewhere else. I, I stayed and uh, I started to learn Persian. And then my interest in, in medieval poetry it was vaguely in the back of my head. Well, there's a great poetry over here from the medieval period. Why don't I try and access it as far as I can? 
And I found a teacher and I started to do that. And, uh, and at that point, what with Afram, meeting Afram and the poetry together, I, I was, by the, by the end of 1971, I was hooked. And that's <laughs> it. I thought, this is where I was. By, by the way, I understand her parents, uh, her parents didn't care for you at, at first. Uh, how did you manage, how did you stick handle that? Well, you're right. They, they didn't care for me at first, and I don't blame them, really. I mean, I have I have daughters myself now, and I can see myself, you know, when my daughters were in their early 20s. I was 21 when I met her. I was 25. Um, uh, I, can, if, if, I mean, if some 25-year-old turned up on my doorstep to take away my 21-year-old <laughs> daughter, and he was from a completely different country, and he spoke a language that I didn't understand. I can well understand why, why um, Afghan's family were not terribly keen on me. Um, and I, I certainly, certainly, in retrospect, don't blame them for it. In fact, um, Afghan's mother, uh, quite early on, I think, she decided I was all right, and she, <laughs> she worked on her husband. Who? Why on earth do you uh, think she decided that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really don't. She, actually, Afghan's mother was a tremendous, she's, she's passed now, but she was a tremendously warm, generous, kind woman. And I think she just, instead of seeing me as a foreigner, she just saw me as a young man who was interested in her daughter. Um, and she tried to sort of weigh me up, whether I was sort of worth it, as it were, whether mm. I would treat her well. Um, whether you know if we if we were together, whether it might last or not, I, I I think she sort of gave me the benefit of the doubt. Her husband, um, he had much more traditional views. Her husband was retired from the army, um, and uh, like a lot of army people in Iran at that time, he had sort of well. Um, I, I, as you said, I translated my uncle Napoleon. He wasn't quite like Daijan, but he was along those lines in some <laughs> ways. You know, he he, um, he really didn't trust the British at all. Um, and of course, he lived through the Mossadegh crisis and all mm. that. And when the British um, did not come out of it at all well, behaved very badly, in fact. And so he had rather a negative view of the British. Um, and uh, it took some time to, to wear them down. It took took three years, in fact. But after three years, finally, he, he said, uh, okay, well, if you want to get married, all right. So we did. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you get married in 1974 in Tehran. Um, That's right. You, what was it like being an English teacher at Tehran University? Actually, I, I didn't like it very much, to be honest. Um, uh, it, it, uh, the classes were very, were, were very um, sporadic and and regimented. Uh, I didn't feel, I, I came with a group of people. Um, um, uh, there were about eight of us or 10 of us, I think, all hired together. And they had hired eight or 10 Americans at the same time to do exactly the same jobs. And then we, we found out when we had been there only a few months or even less than that, I think, that we were, that the Americans and the English were being paid completely different salaries to do exactly the same work. And, and, and in fact, the English were coming out of it better. We were being <laughs> better paid than the Americans. Of course, the Americans were really furious about this. And so, uh, foolishly... Wow, um, the, the, the symbolism here, the, the imperialism, uh, the, the, the two, two big cultures having at it. Uh, in, in, exactly. <laughs> at their prey, yes. I mean, this is very interesting. 
Well, anyway, the Brits decided they would support the Americans, foolishly enough. So we went off all together and we said, look, we all have to be paid the same. And they said, right, you can all be paid what the Americans are paid, which meant that we were going to get a drop in salary. And there were various other problems. with. And so when I stopped that job and then I got a, uh, I got a position teaching English in a small college in the north of Tehran, um, uh, uh, and that was very pleasant. It was much smaller. The staff were very nice. Uh, I, I, I had a good time there. And um, and also, I was able to teach some English literature, too, because there were some students who knew English very well. So I could teach some Shakespeare and some British poetry, and I liked doing that, as well as just teaching the language. And so when I got, by the time I got there, I, I had a good time. I enjoyed that. But my experience of actually Tehran University was not very positive, unfortunately. I mean, Dr. Davis, uh, by, the, by the time the, the late 70s are coming, and, and of course, um, 78, 79, the, the revolution is, um, um, we all know that students played a big role in that, at least in the forefront of demonstrations. And so you're mm-hmm. teaching students. You must have had some awareness of the agitation that was coming what what was what was life like for you in the lead up to november 78 when when you end up leaving um it was well it it, it didn't become very obvious until um say the beginning of 78 by that i mean to a foreigner by that time it was fairly obvious that that um there, there were strong social undercurrents and there was a possibility of major upheavals. Although almost to the very end, you know, almost everybody believed this will b- blow over. That, that is, the Shah would not leave. Um, that, that, because there had been previous moments like this in, uh, in the Shah's reign in which they had in fact managed to neutralize the opposition. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and it was thought that this would happen again. But of course, I was teaching young people. Most of the young people were involved in some way or other in, in, in political, um, they all had political views and, and a lot of them had, were, were active politically too. I, I can't remember exactly when it was. I think it was probably about April or May in 1978. Somebody in one of my classes obviously passed on something I had said. I was very careful what I said in class. But even so, something I had said was passed on to the secret police. And I was summoned and uh, um, interrogated quite, quite, I mean, I, 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 was, uh, I was frightened. I wasn't actually hurt physically at all. Interrogated but, because uh, they thought you might be a revolutionary of some kind? Inter- because I, somebody had said I was saying things that were derogatory about the government or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I never, they never actually told me what it was that I was supposed to have said. So it was difficult to defend myself because I didn't know what I was defending myself from. Anyway, um, they finally got me to sign a paper saying I would never do this again and that kind of thing, and they just let me go. But that was a, a, I mean, that was a, a bad, a bad day. But uh, it didn't have repercussions. But later on, when the when the demonstration started and there was the massacre in Medan and Jalais and all that, um, my wife and I were living on one of the main streets, which was then called Villa. I don't know what it's called now, um, which was a big, wide street. Um, and uh, it was wide enough for tanks, and uh, there were tanks in the street, and there were soldiers, and there was occasional firing. And we had some friends, uh, for the two two people from India, who were good friends of ours, and they lived on a in a back street um, uh, where tanks couldn't get down. It was very narrow. And they said, "Why don't you come and stay with us until all this blows over?" 
um, because everybody thought it would blow over. So we stayed with them, and finally, actually, we actually left Tehran from their, from their flat. We never went back to, to our own apartment. And how hard was it to leave in November of 78? Well, um, we finally left by bus because it was impossible to leave by plane. It was very, very difficult to leave by plane. I had a, I had a student, one of my students worked at the airport, and uh, he, he said that, you know, he would get us plane tickets and so forth. And I think he really meant to, but he was unable to. And we left by bus. And going by bus, it wasn't that difficult. But still, uh, I think it was for some Iranians, but it wasn't for us. How hard was the it main... emotionally to leave is, is kind of where oh, I was Oh, yeah, going. It, was, it was very emotional. It was very, especially leaving uh, Afghan's family. Uh, Afghan's mother was terribly upset. And her father was upset, too, though, though he was much more kind of, oh, he was an army man. You know, he, he didn't show it so much, but I could see he was. Um, uh, and uh, I think Afghan's mother wondered whether she'd ever see Afghan again. She, they, that was quite difficult parting from them. Um, the main thing, the, the, the main kind of uh, uh, crisis or, or, or uh, uh, moment when things seem might, might, they might go wrong for us um, in, le- in leaving Iran was that after Afghan and I married, Afghan was still working. And I was working too, and we were living off my salary and saving Afghan's salary. Um, we had intended to buy a, a, an apartment in Tehran. Anyway, that's what we were doing, and we had quite a bit of money in the bank. Um, it was, you know, enough to buy a small apartment, something like that, which we had saved up. But then, just just about when we wanted to leave, there was a, um, a, a, a kind of order came down from the government that no money could be exported from Iran, that no money could be sent mm-hmm. out of Iran. And so I, we thought, well, we're going to lose it all. And I, I had a, a, a student, I said I had a student who worked at the airport. I had another student who worked at the National Bank, the Banque Meli. And he said to me, he was a very nice young man, and, and he said to me, I don't know if you trust me, but if you make a check out to me uh, and give me the money and give me your account in England, when you get to England, all your money will be there. And I said to Afghan, what do you think? She said, well, we're going to lose it anyway, so you might as well risk it. And I did exactly that. I gave him the check, and we got to England, and every single penny was there. God mm. bless him. Yeah, it was, it, I was very, very touched. And by that time, we had lost touch with him. I tried to get in oh, touch with wow. him to thank him, but things were so chaotic then. And well, he, you, he, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about you and this this move. I mean, you're, from what I understand of your story, you can clarify if I, if, I, if I don't have this correct, but your serious academic study of Persian literature doesn't start until after you return to England in 78, um, in the midst of that coming revolution in Iran. Um, and, I, and I think about that, and I think, was that a... I mean, in a bizarre um, and in perhaps in a macabre kind of way, was that a was that a, a happy accident? Like without the revolution, you might have been forever an English teacher in Tehran, but instead you you become this um, this uh, academic and and writer and translator of Persian literature. I, well, in a way, yes. I, I guess for us, it was a happy accident. Um, what happened was that, you know, I had spent eight years in Iran by then, and I'd, I hadn't been. To, I think I'd been back to England once in that eight years, very briefly, and I had really, you know, I, I'd become soaked in Persian culture and my wife's family and all that kind of stuff. And of course, we got to England, and none of it was there. I missed it, um, and Afghan, of course, missed it profoundly, um, and. Uh, uh, I thought, I don't want to lose all this, 
well, I've started to read this medieval poetry. I'll throw myself into that. Which, and then another thing that had happened was that the, the last, very last class I had, um, uh, the last year I was teaching, the students in that class, many of whom were very political, they were the students who used to tell me there's going to be a demonstration, don't go down this street on that day and that kind of thing. They were very nice, very friendly students. They gave me a the complete edition of what was 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 then the standard edition of the of the Shahnameh, which was called the Moscow edition. They gave me the Moscow edition of the Shahnameh in nine volumes, hmm. uh, which, as a goodbye present, which was terribly sweet of wow. them. It was very nice of them. Hmm. And I got back to England with the nine volumes of, of, of the Shahnameh. And because I felt so nostalgic for them, um, because they were such, I thought, well, the least I can do is try and read it. So I started to read it. And of course... Um, Sorry, what you, language uh, was it in? It was all in Persian. In Persian, okay, yeah. Because you haven't translated it yet. <laughs> I hadn't translated it. Right, it right. your, your book hasn't come out yet. Yeah. No. So I was reading it. I, I started to read it. And in fact, I said there were nine volumes. And I, I really got, I got hooked into it. Um, there are things about starting with Ferdowsi that are good. One, one thing is that Ferdowsi has a relatively small vocabulary compared with many authors. At the moment, I'm translating a, po- a poem by Nizami, who has the most enormous vocabulary. Mm. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I'm, I've been working with this language for 40 years, and I'm still looking at words because of Nizami's using very obscure words. But ne- Ferdowsi doesn't do that. He has a few obscure words, but in general, it's a small vocabulary, so you can get used to it fairly quickly. Also, Ferdowsi's um, writing is very clear. He means what he says, and he says what he means. Um, and there's a kind of simple, strong nobility about it. I don't mean simple in a, in a bad way, but, but it's, it's strong and clear. And so it's not that hard to read as soon as you get used to the mm. slightly archaic language. Uh, but it took me almost a year to read the first volume of the nine volumes. But then the other eight volumes I read in the, in the, in the next year. So I, was, I had sort of got into it by, by the time I ended the first volume. And it was reading the Chalamet, I thought, I want to do this properly, academically. And I started to ask around to see if I could do a doctorate in, in, in medieval Persian. You know, I, and I was ex- uh, sorry. I was accepted at two places, Cambridge and Manchester. And uh, Cambridge said, "Well, you can come, but you're on your own." And Manchester, they said, "You can come, and we'll give you money for two years." So I went to Manchester. <laughs> <coughs> you know, I, I mean, I was going to ask you about the Shahnameh because this is um, Ferdowsi's epic Book of Kings. Uh, uh, you've written, you've done the translation of it. You've also written a, a book denoting its importance. Uh, um, I mean, in a nutshell, why is the Shahnameh, you've talked about the writing style, but why, why is it so vital, or is it so vital? Do you think that we should all be reading it? Oh, yes. It's, it's, um, it's, I, um, let, me, let me digress for a moment. If you translate a work, uh, obviously you get to know the work very well if you translate it. And I, I have found by translating works that by the end of doing it, by getting to the end of it, you either hate it and you've really had enough of it, even if you started off rather admiring it, or your admiration for it has increased exponentially. Mm. And that's what happened with, for me with, with the Ferdowsi. When you start to read Ferdowsi, it seems fairly simple. You think, uh, is there much to this, or is it just a superficial story? But then you realize, and it's an extraordinarily profound and very wise um, disquisition on the nature of human life, on the mm. nature of power, 
ambition, um, authority, heroism, cowardice—all those things. It's the most—it's it, the most marvelous kind of panorama of the possibilities of being human, how you can be good and how people are evil. And one of the great themes that goes through the Shahnameh, goes through right from the beginning right to the end, is if you have a good man and he lives under an evil government, what should he do? Um, and of course, I had just left Iran in the revolution, and that, that, that idea, what do you do when, when you hate the government? What do you do? Do you rise up against it? Do you try and tolerate it? Do you just leave? Do you wash your hands of it and just say, I don't care? What do you do? And the Shahnameh examines that, that, that problem over and over again. And it, and it never really provides a solution. That's another great thing about the Shahnameh. One of, I, I've realized that somebody, I've lived my whole life in literature. And it's not just the literature of Iran, but the literature of other literatures that I, that I know too. The really great works, they don't answer questions, they ask questions. Mm. Um, the, the, and and, this, and this, the Shahnameh does that. You don't have easy answers at the end of the Shahnameh. You see that the, that the problems of government, um, the problems of human relationships, the problems of father-son and husband-wife right, and right. Uh, all those relationships, that they are complicated and difficult and that there are not simple answers, answers to them. Uh, and you get that in Shakespeare too. Um, Ferdowsi is easily comparable to Shakespeare. I mean, he's, just, he's certainly as great an author as Shakespeare, mm. um, uh, if not greater. Um, so I, my, my feeling for... I, how do you, the more sorry, I read how do, the how do you, how do you more, come to that... Uh, uh, not why is fair to see as good as Shakespeare, but how do you even compare? Is it, are you talking about the strength of storytelling or, or characters or, I mean, how, how, how do you, when you think about what you just said, what, what do you actually mean that um, fair to see is as strong as Shakespeare? Well, I, I would say the same of Nezomi, but it's for completely different reasons. With 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 Ferdowsi, what you have is you have a, a you have a sense of the of the depth and complexity of life, and you have a, a strong you have a, a strong sense of of um, humane generosity towards different ways of living. Mm. You get, and you get that in Shakespeare. That is. Um, a, the fact that the fact that the Shahnameh is so long is important. If you only read bits of it, you're only getting a bit of it. You're only getting a bit of what what it what, what it says, mm. because there is such variety in it. There's there's such um, richness in it, uh, and you get all these these different versions of how to live and what it is to be human. Which Ferdowsi is, is is every. I mean, he doesn't make the stories up. He re, he gets the stories from elsewhere, but he uses the stories to examine the things he's interested right, in. Right. And it's clear that what he's interested in questions of conscience. What should the good man do? It's very, very um, strong. People always say the Shalomé is an epic, and of course it is an epic. But the great thing about most epics is that your side has to win. Um, <laughs> and of course, that, that, that's important in the Shalomé too. The Iranians have to win. But the great heroes in the Shalomé, they don't ask themselves, how do I win? They ask themselves, what must I do to be good? What, how, what, what is the ethically right thing to do? It, it, it's what, it's Shakespearean also in the sense of, I mean, probably not just Shakespearean. Uh, this is probably a hallmark of great poetry. You tell me if it isn't. But but the, the questions that are being asked are particularly time agnostic. Right. It's not it's not it's not how do we win the war in 1940. It's it's big questions around humanity, morality, love that really are as relevant today as they would have been 2000 years ago. 
Absolutely. I, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. I, I, um, pe- people say it as a cliche, you know, if you want to understand Iranian culture, read the Shahnameh. But there's a lot of truth in it. I mean, the, a lot of what, what is in the Shahnameh um, is still present in Iranian culture. Um, I mean, despite the fact that many of the mullahs would like it not to be there, but it is still present in Iranian culture. It, you, as you say, it's time agnostic. Mm. It, it crosses time periods. You, you know, when you when we talk about, I mean, I should remind people who are, because I suspect a certain audience will just know you for your great translations and and not be as well uh, um, versed in the fact that you're, you're also a famous or an award-winning uh, poet of English poetry yourself. And you've said that you learned how to write narrative poems by reading Persian narrative poetry. Can, can you describe what first of all, what narrative poems are and how they might be more uniquely situated in Persian works? Um, uh, your, your question, I mean, they're wonderful questions, but each of them, I, I think, well, I've got six ways to answer that. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. First of all, first of all, let's, let's, let's try and define a narrative poem. I'm assuming well, it's a, a, a poem, it, poem that tells a, a story? Is that, is a that, poem that tells a story, yes. A don't all poems story. tell a story or no? That's Not necessarily. Okay. I mean, you, you get a, a short lyric. A poem by Hafez doesn't tell a story. A poem by Hafez ex- examines... A, a particular situation, but it doesn't tell a story. I mean, one of the one of the things about Hafez's Hafez poetry, for example, is that if you look in different editions of, of Hafez, especially if you look in different manuscripts of Hafez, the sa- the, you get the same lines in completely different orders um, the, in, within the poem. The lines are in different order. This means there isn't a progression through the poem. You're, it, it, it isn't a story that's being mm. t- told. It's the same situation which is being examined from different angles with each line but it's the same thing so that that's an that's a non-narrative poem Hafez is not narrative is that but what makes like, uh, Hafez so challenging you you've said you 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 always knew you couldn't do justice to Hafez even though you've translated his works is that why why is Hafez so challenging Hafez is challenging for a number of reasons one of them is that um, his poems are extremely ambiguous and there are, there are I, well, this is what I believe anyway. I think they're deliberately ambiguous. It's not that there is one straight answer. It's, a, it's, it's another, what I was saying about great poetry doesn't give you answers. It, it asks questions mm. or it, it poses problems. Um, I, 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 a lot of people, when they read Hafez, they say it means this and it doesn't mean that. My feeling about Hafez is that it deliberately means both. <laughs> that that many many lines of Hafez and whole poems are ambiguous. They can be read in completely different ways. Um, it, it, an obvious thing is a poem can be read as being about God, or it can be read about be, as being about a human lover. That's that's a very obvious example. And people will say, well, it's really about God, or it's really about a human lover. But my feeling is that Hafez is deliberately writing it so that it can be about both. Hmm. which is wonderful, but it makes it damn difficult to translate. Yeah, I was just going to say, how do you even do that? Yeah, well, bringing the ambiguity yeah. out is, is, is very difficult. Yeah. It's why I, I did hesitate a long time before I... I mean, my publisher kept saying, come on, Dick, we do a half 
and I, I hesitated for a long time because I, I even wrote a paper about how Hafiz is impossible to translate. <laughs> right. um, so, okay, so let me, I, I, sorry, I took us down the, the Hafiz path, okay. but, but we were talking about narrative poems and how you learn to write narrative poems by reading Persian narrative poetry. And I'm just, I thought that was an interesting thing that you once said that I wanted to pick up on. What, what was it about these Persian stories that you read uh, that, that inspired you to be able to write them? Well, um, uh, the, the kind of poetry I started writing when I was a young man was what we would call lyric poetry. It's love poems and poems about little moments. It doesn't tell a story at all. And they're short poems. You know, they, they, they don't go on for pages and pages. They're 10 lines or 14 lines or 20 lines, something like that. And they describe a moment or an emotion or some, something particular and, and that, 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 you know, when the poem ends, the, the, the story ends, as it were. There isn't, a, there isn't, you don't feel what happens next because that, that's it. It's all, it's all there. Now, uh, uh, Persian medieval poetry, the poetry I started reading, I started uh, reading sort of, the poetry I really got into when I was at, at university um, studying Persian what was the narrative poetry. It's poetry that tells a story that takes a long time to describe something and that um, goes into it in great depth. It doesn't sort of, it doesn't give you, uh, it doesn't say I'm in love and this is what it's like to feel in love. It, it sort of, it describes the situation from many aspects and, and, uh, and it's highly decorated too in a way that most English poetry is not. Uh, Persian, as, I, as I said right at the beginning, Persian poetry is deliberately beautiful, or most of it is, in a way that most English poetry isn't. Um, that sense of being able to um, uh, examine a subject over a long course of over many lines, for example, and to and to to tell a story. Uh, how how do you get the story out? If you um, um, if you have a story, you have people in the story. How do you represent what the people are like? How do how do you establish that this person is like this, this person is like this, all the while writing in verse? Um, that's not easy to do, and I, I I learned to do it reading Persian narrative poetry. I really did. Um, I mean, I had read English narrative poetry, but it's never really spoken to me. Yeah. Um, it's it's the short poems in English that I've always really loved. There are exceptions to that. The, um, I mean, this is probably a, a tedious, uh, if not. Um but stupid question, but 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 how how do you know if you are a narrative poet or you're a novelist? I mean, what? How do you how do you make what? What's the difference? Uh, um, how would you determine the difference if you're the person writing? Well, I I, I mean that's 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 it's very hard. Um, uh, I think I, I've 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 noticed this about writers that they always think that the thing they don't do is the really hard thing to do. And I know that most novel, <laughs> most novelists say that it's really it's much harder to write to write poetry than to write novels. I think it's much harder to write novels than to write poetry mm. because I've I've always written poetry. I have tried to write a couple of novels. They were dreadful, really awful, terrible. And I remember reading a novel. I mean, this is off the subject of Persian, but as you've asked, I remember reading a novel by Graham Greene. I think it was um, The Quiet American. Mm. Uh, and uh, his, the opening chapter, I think, is, is four pages. Um, it's very short. And he, in, in, the, in that four pages, he establishes two characters, what they're like, their relationship, um, the whole social situation that they live in. Um, and it, it, it happens in, in, in Vietnam. 
um, and it, one of the characters is is uh, an American, and one of them is is, is a Vietnamese, and so th- there's also this feeling of of cultural difference, and and also a, there's a power difference between them, and all that. He establishes all this in four pages, and I read it, and I read it sort of, with, and I thought I could never do that. So I thought, right, okay, uh, novels are not for me. I'm going <laughs> to stick with poetry. Um, so that, that I mean, that was my 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 way of seeing that I wasn't a novelist, and I couldn't. I, I don't. Yeah, there is another thing which, which 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 actually tells against the poet, but um, the, the probably the greatest poet in English, the greatest British poet in English of the 20th century is W. H. Auden, mm. and uh, somebody asked Auden. Uh, if he'd ever thought of writing a novel. Uh, Auden was, was very witty. He was always putting himself down. He said, oh, no, no, no. I, I, if you write novels, you have to be interested in other people. <laughs> now, there's, there's a real truth in that. Right, right, and, right. Um, poets, I, I, I'm not, I, I, I mean, I, I try, obviously I try and be interested in other people, but poets find, find it very difficult to get out of their own head. Yeah. And I've I've noticed that about the poets I know. It's very difficult for them to sort of disengage themselves from their own sensibility. To be a good novelist, you have to be able to do that. Part of the and reason I, I ask this is because I find the the terminology confusing. I, I always have, especially when it comes to Persian works. Um, you know, when I was younger, I would hear the Shahnameh described as a poem. And I remember mm. the first time I saw uh, the Shahnameh in book form, I was like, this is a poem? It's a fucking, it looks like Ulysses, right? <laughs> How is this a poem? So uh, I mean, my idea of a poem was like something that you see on one page and, and there's a rhyme pattern or something, you know? So um, I, I, I'm on a lifelong quest to try and figure out what these things are. But. Well, well, yeah, well, I mean, with medieval poetry, it's easy. A poem is something which has rhyme and meter. Um, but with modern poetry, it's more complicated. Um, uh, and of course, my heart has always been in the medieval period. My own—I mean, you mentioned my own poetry. My, my own poetry, uh, by the standards of most people who 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 write poetry now, is extremely old-fashioned. I mean, it, it it has rhyme, it has meter. It's uh, it's not in free verse, um, and it was old-fashioned when I started. You know, it's not as it's not as if I've outgrown the fashion. Um, I, I, I sort of started middle-aged, as it were. Well, well, um, well speaking of old-fashioned, I mean, the choice of translating a modern work like My Uncle Napoleon really stands out in your in your canon. It, it's certainly not a work of medieval Persian poetry, but um, it was wildly popular and um, very influential and, and important, I would say, in, in, in the modern works of uh, Iranian uh, writers. What attracted you to taking on that gig? Well, it was a number of things. One was um, uh, my wife and I, Afkam and I, we, we came to England. We came to England when the revolution was really sort of getting going. And there was a lot of optimism in Iran and a lot of optimism outside Iran. Um, but then the revolution started to go sour. They started executing people from the previous government. <clears throat> I remember the execution of Haveda, who was the Shah's, not the Shah's mm. last prime minister, but the, 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 he was the major. There was there were, there were a couple after Haveda, but he he was the big prime minister for most of the time mm. I was there. And Haveda was, I mean, he may have had his faults, but he certainly wasn't an evil person. Uh, he certainly didn't deserve to be shot like that. That was when I changed about the revolution, the execution of Haveda. Um, 
but also it very and then there was the american hostage crisis yes. and iran became a place which was totally vilified in the west yes i mean it's, it hasn't changed that much now although it's better now than it was then and it was seen as a place of of sort of dour theological barbarism yes um and that was not the iran i knew at all you know i mean my iran had been utterly different from that my iran had been a welcoming humane kind generous place where I had been very well treated and I'd had a wonderful time. And I felt, and Uncle Napoleon, it, 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 I mean, the, the characters in Uncle Napoleon, they're very, very Iranian, but they're very, very human too. And they're not at all like the caricature of, of Iran that was going around um, after the revolution. And so one of the reasons I wanted to, trans I, I thought I'd try and translate Uncle Napoleon was just that, that it shows such a, a humane and funny and charming and welcoming version of, of Iranian society. And, and the, the people in, in it, they're recognizable people that you can find in any society. I mean, the, the, the person like Asadollah Mirza, for example, and, and uh, all of them, you know, mm. the whole lot, mm. Aziz al-Saltani. Uh, there are lots of English Aziz al-Saltanis. So it was the humanity of it that I, and also the humor. Um, humor was not something that was associated with Iran in the West at, at that time at all. And also the earthiness. Uh, it was seen as a place that that that, that was, had been taken over by a kind of crazy spirituality, which which discounted all the kind of earthy side of life. Well, um, uh, my my uncle Napoleon Daijan is is very earthy. So one reason was I wanted to show that Iran was not like, or it wasn't only like what all the propaganda and right was saying was undermined like. some stereotypes. Yes, sure, undermined some stereotypes. What were the other exactly. reasons? The other reason was that I had never translated a, a novel, and I wanted to see if I could do it. It was a, it was a test for myself. Also, I saw that uh, the, uh, you can say there are two kinds of humor there's, uh, in novels. There's situational humor, which is humor um, which is based on characters and incidents and things like that. And then there's linguistic humor, which is humor which is based on language. And a lot of the humor in Uncle Napoleon, there's, there's a lot of situational humor, and the whole basis of it is situational. Yes. But there's a lot of linguistic humor. There's a lot of humor which is based on the way characters speak, the different kind of social levels that they speak at, um, the, the, the way that uh, Astolomeza, for example, talks about sex, all that kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of... of, of uh, and then, then there's there's the servant Mashkosem, who speaks this kind of um, rural working class um, Persian, and I thought, am I going to be able to convey all those differences of? And I just wanted to see if I could do it. I, I it was really a test for myself, uh, and and as I got into it. I loved it more and more, and mm. I, I thought, well, I might not be doing this very well, but I'm having a great time. Um, so I, so I, I, fin I did it. I finished it. It is. Um, it's such a great pleasure to get to talk to you. I want to end off with a few questions, a couple questions about um, about being a translator, and and maybe I can start with segue out of uh, uh, my uncle Napoleon because that's a case where at least when you uh, sadly he's passed now but when you wrote uh, when you did the translation uh, Iraj Pezikzad was still alive and um, in that I mean I, obviously you can't consult with Ferdowsi when you translate the Shahnameh but but in that case do, do you speak to the author do you um, check in with him or do you show uh, translations or, or, or is it just sort of um, does the publisher or the author kind of give their blessing and then you're off to the races by yourself um i've got a funny story about that when i, st when I started to trans i did i did a couple of chapters and then um major publishers said they would publish it if i did the whole thing so i thought well i better get pezisard's permission 
So I wrote to him, and I got this postcard back, um, in which basically he, he, the postcard was in Persian. He gave me two conditions. One was I had to finish it in two years. And if I hadn't finished it in two years, he, he withdrew the permission. And that was, I, I found out later, it was because that somebody had offered to translate it into French and done half of it and then given up. Uh, and um, he had turned other people away who wanted to translate it and then nobody wanted to do it. And so he was angry about that, which was un very understandable. Mm -hmm. And the other one was that I would send him my versions um, every chapter, chapter by chapter, I would send it to him to review. And he would send back a card saying, yes, it's fine, keep going, yes, it's lovely, keep going. And, uh, and I got all these cards back. And then after a while, I thought, well, I'll send him three or four chapters. Because he hadn't so far made any negative criticisms. And then much later, I found out that his, his um, Pesistad's European language was French. He spoke French perfectly. Uh. But he really didn't know English very well. Right. Yeah, he was he in Paris. Yeah. Yes, he was in Paris. And he couldn't really understand my translation. I mean, um, um, I, so his, his saying that, you know, I, I want to see it, it was a way of saying to me, you make sure you do it properly because right, I'm going to check right, it. Right, right. But, but, but he couldn't actually check it. It was right, a kind right. of joke. It was, it was a joke very much in the spirit of, the, of his book, in fact. You know, he was, he was keeping me to something by by conning me a little bit. By, well, well by, that, by, I mean, that raises the, that, that's, a, as I say, a good segue because... Um, I, I've really wanted to ask you, I'm always fascinated when it comes to, to translators, especially translators. I mean, this is a particularly amped up uh, case with you because um, you're translating major works, historic mm classic works and mm. you're the preeminent i mean you know as the washington post says or whatever the preeminent translator of these these persian works um which is fabulous uh, and at the same time i would suspect it means that there's a lot of responsibility for you in other words when i'm reading um the shahnam era my my uncle napoleon translated by dr dick davis i'm reading your interpretation of these works sure. yeah. and and i've got to imagine it's a little bit like when I asked you a question earlier and you said, I'm thinking of six different ways I can answer that. It, it's probably mm. something like that when you first read the poem, right? You sort of think, well, what are the six different ways I can, I can do this? And so how do you know if you're getting it right? Well, you don't, is the short answer. You do your best. I mean, I, when, I, when I was applying to do my PhD at Manchester, I went up there uh, and I talked to the person who would be my Sort of my supervisor, my director of studies. And uh, he said, why do you want to do this? And I, I said, um, perhaps your listeners won't recognize the reference, so I'll explain it. I said, I would like to be the Arthur Whaley of Persian literature. Now, Arthur Whaley was a person who lived in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and he translated the major works of Japanese and Chinese literature into mm. English, which were not known in the West at all. And I mean, a lot of people criticize his translations now. They say, you know, they're not that good, where better ones have been done and so forth. But the thing was, he made the West aware of that literature in a way that it hadn't mm. been before. And I was very conscious that, that English-speaking society was just not aware of this wonderful stuff that there was in Iran. And I at least wanted to make them aware in the way that Martha Whaley had done. Of course, I wanted to do the translations as well as I could. But even if they were bad translations, if they were out there, people would say, ah, oh, there is a great epic poem in Persian, or there is a great love story, or there is a great Sufi mm. allegory, you know, um, just, just, just to put these things on the map in the West, in the way that um, uh, Arthur Whaley had done for Japanese and Chinese culture, especially Japanese, but also Chinese. Um, 
and Asaway was a much greater scholar than I am, and I'm not comparing myself at all, but I wanted to do a similar kind of thing, and that's what I've tried to do. In terms of, in terms of responsibility, well, as I say, you do your best. If I, if I can tell, a, there's a story in the Shanamé, which I've, I've often used to illustrate what, a, what I think a translator should be. Okay. Um, the story is it's it's from it's quite late in the Shahnameh. It's in the Sasanian part of the poem after Alexander the Great, just before the Arabs come. Um, it's the, it's the reign of Khosrow Parviz, and there's a, there's a, a a musician called Barbad, and Barbad hopes that he can be a court musician. But all the all the, um, the musicians who are already there at the court they're jealous of him so they keep him away from the court so the king never hears him play and he's very despondent and then he meets a gardener one of the king's gardeners and the gardener says look i'll hide you in a tree and when the king comes i know that the king's going to sit in a particular place uh, in the evening and drink his wine there uh, and and so there'll be an entertainment and you be in the tree and you play um, and you'll be hidden in the tree, and that's what he does. And he he plays these these, uh, these he plays and sings, and the king of course can't see him, and he says, "What is that? What is that marvelous thing?" And you know, he, now when I when I when I, I wrote about this, I said, "What, what the translator ideally is like Barbad, he should hide himself in the tree." Mm. You know, Barbad has this. He, he knows these songs, which are ancient songs, and now he sings them, and he makes them, he makes them present for the king. He brings them into the present, and he brings them to this particular audience. That's what a translator should do. But Barbad has hidden himself. He doesn't push himself forward. The king can't see him. On the other hand, in order to sing the songs at all, Barbad has to use his voice. So although you hide yourself as a translator, you have to use your own voice. Um, and that's the tricky thing. By using your own voice, you're revealing yourself. But I really have tried to keep myself out of my translations as much as I can. But it's impossible. You're there in the translation. And you can see this. I mean, um, for example, Homer in, 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 uh, in Western epic. Homer's been translated into English virtually every generation. So there's, there's tens, if not hundreds, of versions of Homer. And everyone is different. They're all different from each other because they're written at different times by different people with different sensibilities, with different interests, different vocabularies, and so forth. And each, your own voice is there, no matter how much you want to get rid of it. The other thing I've tried to do is I only translate works that I really admire and really love. And I want to do justice to mm. the author. I do. I, I. I. Literally, I have. Done, I do this when I translate. I imagine the author watching me, and the author. And I think. Um, can I say this? No, he won't like that. I can't say that. I've got. Well, I, I have a sort of analogy that. Uh, let me try it on you, and and to, to you you see if this works for you in terms of helping me understand how you see your role, uh, and that is, I, I wonder how important translating meaning. Um, transferring uh, uh, demonstrating tone is to this obviously the, we under, we can understand the dynamics of translating words but um, the, the the effort to translate tone so for me the analogy would be um, there's a Bob Dylan song that Bob Dylan has mm. written and he's singing and mm. you're gonna cover the song yeah. um, <laughs> in, in Persian or you know whatever uh, maybe let's say if even you're just gonna cover the song in English are you mm. trying to sound like Bob Dylan who has a particular twang and way that he sings or are you trying to commute are you trying to um, leave the listener with the impression of how they would feel if they're listening to this Bob Dylan song um, uh, well in translating um, 
to answer your question in a roundabout way, really, I'm trying to do the latter. When I when I when I translate something, and it, it, of course, it's it's all a, it's a question of, of of part scholarship, part imagination, mostly imagination, with some as much scholarship as one has. Um, but I I ask myself. The, sorry, I'm, I'm I'm jumping around, but the first thing about translating is you're not translating words, you're translating meanings. And this mm. is very important, because if you translate word for word, it's going to sound rubbishy. You can't do that. You have to say to yourself, what does the line mean? And it's the meaning you put into English, not the words. A, a very obvious thing is is um, uh, translating Dijon, for, for, for example, the insults, like pedasukte. If you translate that literally <laughs> into English, it's ridiculous. It doesn't Your mean anything. Father is burned, yeah, or exactly. something. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You, you've, you've, you've got to translate the meaning, not, right, not, not, not right, the words. Right. And that's true altogether. And what I ask myself is, I, I want to put the meaning into English so that the reader is going to feel something as close as I can get it, and it's mm, obviously not mm. that close, as close as I can get it to what I think an original reader of Ferdowsi or Nezami mm. or Attar would feel when he read the poem. Mm. What would an Iranian feel when he first heard Ferdowsi? Um, now, my language is not Ferdowsi's language. It's not nearly as noble. It's not nearly as strong. But I want to get as, as close as I can to it mm. so that the English reader get something of what it's like to be a Persian reading, the, right. the, an Iranian reading the Persian. That's what I want to do. The feel, course, the feel of the Bob Dylan song. The feel of it, yes, you, yeah. you get the feel of it. Yes, that, that's it. Well, I he didn't love my analogy. I noticed you, you skated away from the Bob Dylan, but, but, I, <laughs> but it works well, for me. I, because, I, I, you only skated away from it because you're, there you're talking about English and English. Yes, and it's yes, yeah. It's a thing when you're doing yeah, it to a... To you're a, right. To, you're, yeah. Although some would argue that Bob Dylan doesn't really sing in English, so it's, well, there's that too. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of it sort of works. I I wonder about in this era of sensitivity around cultural appropriation. Like, I if I know the Iranian community uh, around the world, um, I I can only imagine that uh, everyone is quite grateful to have this guy who this eminent scholar who grew up in in britain came to iran loved the culture and is now in america does these translations it, it almost feels like an, you're honoring the culture but has it ever have, have you ever had the opposite reaction has anybody sort of gone who are you to do this this should be done by an iranian have you ever faced that Oh yes, I have. I mean, the the people being nice about the translations is far more common than the opposite. But I have received the opposite. I, I mean, it, particularly when I started out, I would get people who more or less said, "Who the hell do you think you are to be doing this?" Um, but you know, I, they, what, that wasn't common. But it did happen. I mean, it did happen occasionally. Um, also, you know, I would say that I was working on a particular poem. And this person, who I could see didn't really know the poem, he, he knew the poem by reputation, he would explain to me what the poem was about. <laughs> and I thought, look, I really know this poem backwards. I, I'm not interested in, you know, that kind of thing. But mostly people have been very generous. Um, most Iranians have been more generous than I deserve, I feel. I, I'm very grateful to the way the Iranian community has has accepted my translations. Um, you, I mean, it, you're 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 really one of the greats. And let me let me just finish off with a general question, if you'll indulge me with this one, which is, um, um, I mean, let me go super general. Why why do you think? My my feeling is that there continues to be an interest in Persian poetry and and literature. Um, 
I would say even even an increase in the sort of canonizing of say Rumi, for example, in mm. in Western pop culture, um, yeah. in in recent years. What do you attribute that to? Uh, that's that's well, Rumi is a particular case. You know, almost all now there are major exceptions to what I'm going to say, but almost all the Rumi which is available uh, in English is not Rumi. It's not even remotely roomy. It's uh, no. It's, what do you mean? Um, it's most of the most most of the people who who quotation marks have translated roomy. They don't know Persian, um, and um, what they're doing is they're taking an idea and a poem and they're writing their own poem, and that's fine. But don't pretend it's roomy because it. Because, now there are major exceptions to that. I mean, the, the translation is there's a translation of the, of the Masnavi which is going on at the moment by a guy called Javid uh, Mojadeddi. Uh, and that's a wonderful translation, uh, mm. and it, it's beautifully done, and it really is Rumi. And there are there are other other very good translations too. But a lot of what people think of as Rumi is, in fact, um, it's it's the translator's own poems. It, it's it's very very. I mean, it's so far from the from the original poems that you can't tell what poem's being translated. You you can't tell which poem of Rumi it's supposed to be, because uh, the, the the English is so far away. So Rumi is a special case. Um, and some translations of Hafez are like that too. Mm. I mean, I, I could, could give you a couple of names, but I won't. Um, it's it's not fair. Um, but uh, I don't know. Um, we we do we do live in a world in which cultures, just because of communications and 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 radio and instant communication from one side of the and telephones and everything from one side of the globe to the other, everybody is very conscious of other cultures. And most people who are not sort of parochially stupid and think that, oh, my culture is the only interesting culture. And of course, there are people like that in every damn culture, mm. that they think that my culture is the best and I'm not interested in anything else. But most people who aren't like that, and I hope that is most people, in fact, they're, they're interested in other cultures. Um, they, they want to know what other cultures are like. One can only, I mean, there are so many cultures, there's so much literature, one can only do so much. But I felt that, I felt that there's enough in Persian poetry, which I loved, um, that there was enough there that I could show other people that it was worth loving too. That's that's what I wanted to do. That that it that that. But I I I I I want people I want people when they read my Ferdowsi to feel obviously they're reading my Ferdowsi they're reading English, mm. but I don't want them to feel they're just reading Dick Davis. I want them to feel that they're getting something of what Ferdowsi is, not just me, but the actual the actual Ferdowsi or Attar or or whoever it is. Do you agree that there it feels like there's a a growing interest in in Persian works, or am I is that wishful thinking on my part? There is, but it's gradual. And um, I, I mean, I've talked about this many times, especially with my publisher, um, that Persian literature is still majorly underrated. It's still not seen as the truly great literature as it is. Um, you know, there are many great literatures in the world, and I, and I hate this kind of, you know, this literature is better than that kind of thing. Every literature is wonderful according to its own mm. standards, and the standards are different in different literatures. So by English standards, English literature is the best, but by Persian standards, Persian literature is the best, and so on for Italian and all the others too. Um, but by any, by any criterion, by, by any way of measuring, Persian has a major literature, a great literature. One thing you can say is that in different cultures at different times, most of the sort of artistic energy seems to go into one art form. 
like you get an awful lot of wonderful painters in the Renaissance in Italy, and then you get an awful lot of wonderful composers in Germany in the late right, 18th and right. 19th centuries. But now in Iran, that, that in the Middle Ages, that energy, that, that wonderful artistic energy, it went into lots of different forms too, but it mainly went into poetry. That's right. where the real genius of Iran went. And it went on for a long time. If you think of the, the major period of British literature, it's from about 1560 to 1700. It's 150 years, something like that. The major period of Iranian literature, it lasts from the, from the, the 11th century to the 15th century. It's a long period, with, and there's a lot of great poetry in there, not just a few great poems, many, many great poems. And most of them still are, don't have the recognition in the West that they deserve. Dr. Dick Davis, what a great pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for the education. Um, thanks for the uh, enthusiasm. And um, uh, I, I can only be grateful for this uh, hour and, and plus that we spent together. Thank you for this. Well, thank you very much for asking me. I've, en I've enjoyed talking about it. I'm always ready to talk about Persian poetry and mm. get people to try and read it. <laughs> I hope we'll so. do it again soon. Um, talk you. to you soon. Thank you again. And uh, hello to, you, uh, to, to, to your, your wife uh, um, and the, the Persian community in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. I've enjoyed doing it. Thanks for asking me. Cheers. Bye-bye. Dr. Dick Davis, an award-winning British-born poet, university professor, translator, leading scholar of Persian literature, who has made it his lifelong mission to introduce Persian medieval poetry and literature to the Western world. We reached Dr. Dick Davis in Columbus, Ohio today. I could have done that for... I could have talked to him for another five hours. Really, it was beautiful. It was poem. What a beautiful sounding voice he has. Yeah. I almost want to put his, his, his voice to a soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and the insights about uh, Persian poetry... Mm -hmm. Um, did you did you know all of that stuff? Actually, what he said about the Hafez translation actually it blew me away. Like which part of it? The the uh, ambig ambiguity in his yes. poetry, which yes. is right. You know, it's always I I have this issue to translate Hafez poetry to non uh, Persian. It's really hard because you cannot translate the ambiguity. Yes. Yeah, and how you don't. You know, when I asked him, uh, how do you know you've got it right? And he said, you don't. It's really, <laughs> yeah. you know, that the responsibility of the translator. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, fascinating. And, and that his, his uh, work as an English poet was informed by Persian poetry. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a beautiful yeah. message. And his whole uh, story, I mean, um, you know the English patient re reference, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that he goes to Iran, falls in love with the... <laughs> his nurse when he's yeah. critically ill and uh, the rest is history yeah. Yeah, um, he's uh, it you know we often say th yeah. sometimes we say things like this but uh, here's a person who did not grow up Iranian mm -hmm. who seems to have more of an appreciation and an understanding of Persian culture, culture. and Persian creativity and yes. arts than most Iran than many Iranians yes, it's yes. just uh, it's very inspiring yeah, yeah. what an inspiring man and I like the uh, metaphor analogy of the Bob Dylan the Bob Dylan <laughs> I'm not sure he liked it no <laughs> it worked for me <laughs> yeah uh, because they're not it's true it's not I, I it's not exactly cover songs yeah. 
yeah. it doesn't work in the exact same yeah. way, but I, I stand by my metaphor. Uh, thank you, Shai John. Uh, thank you to everybody. This is Full Time for Rook today. Our website for all things Rook related, rookmedia.com, R O Q E media.com, where you can find all of our programs. Uh, Rook Moments Funnies video. All of our video is there too. Rookmedia.com. You can support us there too by becoming a patron. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Rohan, talented Anahita, the fabulous Keon, Super Patty Saw, Smart Pega, Ahai Merthod, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. Stay tuned for Talking to Persians London coming up in a couple of weeks. We're looking forward to you. Looking forward to seeing it. Find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. Mizun Machine.